Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 99. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by the illustrious Chris Raygun. Chris, how are you today? Doing all right. Still sweltering. Yeah. Still uh, still ungodly hot. I'm sorry to hear that. The weather's been been pretty rainy over here in Virginia. Not too hot. Don't miss that California heat at all. But yeah. We are going to get the crazy southern heat, the uh, swampy heat, the oh, humid God. heat. Yeah, good luck with that one. Yeah, soon enough. So, but apparently, you know, I've not lived here. I've lived here now for almost six months, but I guess it's more like five months, really. But the uh, the weather apparently is not normal for this time of year. It's supposed to be hotter and more swel- sweltering as well here, but yeah, no. it just hasn't been <laughs> the case yet. It makes no sense. Like it was snowing like not too long ago in New York. Like this, I saw that. like in this this month in May, and it's just like, oh Jesus, okay. Now I I have to say I, I've been realizing this when we meet. So for people, well, people ask about this all the time. How do we record? We record over ZenCaster, mm-hmm. which is a pretty cool app, and then we actually record natively. We just use ZenCaster to hear each other because it's so low latency. It it's a really good program for that. But when yeah. Chris signs in, I send Chris an invite to the. Uh, to the show and then he comes in and every time he comes in he's like hello <laughs> like it, almost like someone is like radioing him on some sort of <laughs> cv radio or something like that or he just didn't expect this is the that force he was of habit anyone. it's just like it's it's a good way to make sure that you're heard because it's yeah. cause, you know the 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 app is kind of finicky and i have a lot of different like audio programs on my thing so i just kind of like okay hello okay he didn't hear that hello that that worked Especially because I've done a lot of uh, switching up with my audio interfaces because the one I had last time screwed up. Yeah. So I got a replacement. Right on. Hello? <laughs> it's no, no, it makes me laugh. I was thinking about that when you just came in this just moments ago. But it is the precipice. We're on the precipice of episode 100. 
We're excited to be here with you today. Sacred Symbols, of course, is our weekly PlayStation podcast, and you can get it three days early and ad free by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where more than 8,600 of you do, and we really appreciate it. Every person is welcome. We need every little bit of help we can get to continue to do the show. So if you like our show, you want content to add free content, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show, maybe even get your name in the credits, please do consider going and supporting us on Patreon. Sacred Symbols Plus is our weekly Patreon-exclusive supplemental episode of the show. We go for 60, 90, sometimes 120 minutes or more on random topics. Now, Chris, last week, we did a Persona 5 Royal spoiler cast and review discussion. And by we, I mean, we actually had two other people do it. Dustin Furman, who is the editor, he's like the only full-time employee of my company, and other than me, of course, and Mr. Matty Plays, who is a YouTuber who also does some side quest episodes on my YouTube channel, and they did a great job. The response to this show has been really great. So we will continue to monitor games that we might not play together and call in other people, including them, when it makes sense. So thank you for that. We hope you enjoyed it. It felt weird to ignore, of of course, the most popular Metacritic PS4 game, exclusive or otherwise, this year. Yeah, of course. And that is Persona 5 Royal. So thank you for your kind words on that. I'm sure the guys appreciate it as well. I think the next episode of Sacred Symbols Plus will just be us going back to the mailbag since we haven't done that in a while. But if something crops up, obviously, we will act accordingly. Turtle Squirts wrote into us. On Patreon, Turtle Squirts says, hey, Chris and Colin, I want to know if you will consider the near postmortem podcast that Matt and Dustin suggested. They did a great job. Plus, why do you have such shitty taste in games? (laughs) It's not a very nice thing to say. No, I don't want to go too far back. Near is near automata is what? Three years old. Yeah, two to three years old. It's pretty. It's so it's ancient in Internet time. Yeah, it's that time has come and gone. Now, when near replicant comes out. If there's demand for that, I might play that. But if there's demand for that, maybe we'll call them back in. Yeah. Uh, as, as far as why we have shitty tasting games, I don't know. I guess that's a subjective inquiry. I appreciate you putting me down, though, Turtle Squirts. <laughs> it's always an important part of the show. Yeah, you got to put us down and put us in our plate. We can't feel too good. Yeah. At, at any particular time. And of course, it's our weekly reminder that our video game Twin Breaker is out on PlayStation Network for PS4 and Vita. You can buy it for $9.99 or your local equivalent. It is cross-buy, so you get both versions for the price of one, two platinum trophies, etc. And we've been getting inquiries about this. You should have received emails about this if you actually bought the physical copies of the game that we sold in March. We sold more than 4,000 of them. Those ship imminently. In fact, by the time you hear this, they should already be en route to you. En route? En route. E-N. Yeah. R-O-U-T. En route. En route. And so we appreciate your patience there. Although I think people were getting a little snippety with this. And or is it, it's, it's really uppity or snippy snippety. I don't think is the thing. Yeah, but I think it's a real word at all. No, I don't think it is either. But the, the game was always going to be shipped in May, even oh, before yeah. coronavirus. So we're not late. I would have understood. And I know you guys would have understood if we were late. But I was a little confused why people were expecting this game sooner, because it did say May was the predicted release date of the physical version. But nonetheless, those are coming. I'm excited to get my hands on mine, and I'll obviously be sending them to Chris as well. Yeah. Corey Savas wrote into us on Patreon, just like you can. He says, Colin, as a trophy man myself, I'm always fascinated by the trophy statistics on the PSN. I am too. Twin Breakers caught a glimpse trophy. 
named, of course, after the Blind Side song Caught a Glimpse. Trophy has a 98.2% earn rate, meaning roughly two out of every 100 people who have played the game didn't even play it for more than a few minutes. I'm left to ponder who are these men and women? What lives do they lead? Please help me understand why someone would buy a game, launch it for two minutes and never to return again. These questions keep me up at night. <laughs> All the best. I understand that. I, I'm always fascinated by those statistics as well, because there really are no trophies in, on any game, no game that has 100 percent earn rate once it's actually been out for a few days. Yeah, it is really weird. Yeah, it is. Right. Do you ever notice that when you look at trophies or achievements, these yeah. peculiar like you, these trophies or achievements that you really can't avoid? As you start a game. Yeah. And so, yeah, it really means I mean, for, for you not to get caught a glimpse in Twin Breaker, Chris, means that you literally never even started the game because I'm pretty sure you get that trophy before the first stage. Maybe they recall. haven't uh, had a chance to boot it up. Maybe they're very busy, busy boys. They could be busy boys. Oh, sure. Uh, they could have been turned off by the epic story I wrote in the beginning. And they're like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, what is this? <laughs> Fuck this. <laughs> just, Fuck they this just shit. Set their Vita on fire. I know. There's like, I can't. I don't know. What, I don't know what the purpose. Quickly, of this is. before the trophy pops, destroy my PlayStation. It's uh, it's a strange thing. It's also possible. Well, no, I was going to say it's possible. Uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. I was going to say that maybe the PSN could read that you're playing a game includes it in those percentages, but the trophies are never synced. But I don't think that that's the way it works either. In other words, the person could have played the game, been counted, but never sunk their trophies. But I don't think that that's the way it works. Yeah, so, no. So you, it's it's just weird. I agree with you there, Corey. Thank you for your inquiry. And thank you for everyone that has supported Twin Breaker. Yeah. We're really proud of it. We've gotten so many questions, inquiries, additions to both the Nacho Saga and now the Poop Diamond Saga. <laughs> I'm calling those both off. Yeah. We've the some of the inquiries we've gotten about nachos go so deep. People are really upset about your stance in your in particular your stance on nachos. But the poop diamond thing's been interesting because people have been writing in about the carrots of diamonds and the science and how you can make a machine and is it worth it? Someone had, wrote in saying they have Crohn's disease and so they poop a lot and so they would be really interested in it because they could technically manufacture more diamonds. Hmm. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. Of that's that. a lot of detail. That's like getting yeah. into some deep lore. Yeah, I always wonder when like a new person listens to our show. We get new people, obviously, probably listening every week. Is this when they turn it off? Yeah, probably. It's a very jarring <laughs> segue, I'd imagine, in the middle of a PlayStation podcast to uh, discover the hypotheticals of fecal manufacturing of diamonds. Yeah, the uh, one in 100 possibility that you get a $300 diamond in your poop. I, I don't know how to do a podcast any other way, though. I don't like just diving in and being like, all right, let's get right into this. Like I'm oh, doing yeah, a show no, on yeah. CNN or something like that. I can't I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's not a new, it's not uh, it's not technically a new show, although it kind of is. No, I don't know what it is. It's whatever you want it to be, I guess. Oriel Martinez wrote in and said, Kalino and Cristiano, I would like to know about the dual sense rain feeling comment that I heard. This can't be true, right? Chris, have, did you see this? No. What, what, anything so about this? What is this? So what this is, is. I have a story over at Game Rant, but a lot of people have reported on it. I'm not really all that interested in this, but so what their story says is on Play Watch Listen, which is actually co-hosted by your friend Alana Pierce. Oh, yeah. Who used to work at IGN. We missed each other. I, I only met her in person once, but we didn't work at the same time there. And of course, Mike Bithel, who's a buddy of mine who made games like Thomas Was Alone and volume and actually the john hick uh, wick hex game troy baker the famous 
voice actor. So they were talking on their show, Play, Watch, Listen. I didn't listen to it, but again, this is a transcription of it about the DualSense controller. And Bithel, it says, remarked with Wintery, who Austin Wintery is another guy that does the show. He's an, a composer. He says, uh, quote, we're going to love what they're doing with the controller on PS5. And Wintery was going over how it says here, the sound of weather like rain would be handled in Unreal Engine 5. And the story says sound effects of the store of the sort are typically captured via a process known as Foley, where sound designers record actual rainfall and then convert the audio into a file that can be integrated into a game's environment. With Unreal Engine 5, Wintery notes that sounds like raindrop can be isolated as a single event and scaled up or down as needed. Bithel then jumps in and said he got a demo of the DualSense controller pertaining explicitly to the haptic, haptic feedback felt by raindrops, implying that the device will be will allow users to feel when it is raining. Additionally, it can convey the ex exposure to a number of different weather related events and connect the feedback to the sound effects, giving players a completely new way of experiencing the world and environment. So they go later on into how they can't say too much more without breaking their NDAs. But what it sounds like is that the haptics are going to be so sophisticated on dual on dual sense. I want to call it DualShock Five. I fucking hate that name, Dual Sense. But Dual Sense PlayStation 5's controller that there's going to be like this really dynamic haptic feedback and the rain example, I guess, is what they're using and how maybe that's why they're tying in this emphasis on audio on PlayStation Five. Does this sound interesting to you? Because this sounds to me like, first of all, it's going to waste a lot of power on your controller and. It just kind of sounds gimmicky, like motion controls and all those other things that came and went. Well, I don't yeah. think this is I don't think this is what we're looking for. No, on, on well, console. I'm of two minds about it. I, on one hand, I think it is kind of cool and I think it is innovative. And I think for a lot of, um, you know, single player experiences like the first run through, I think it's it would be kind of an interesting, especially if it's done well. Like we we obviously don't know how well it's implemented, like because a lot of these a lot of these features really just come down to how they're implemented. Like motion controls were pretty, pretty gimmicky. But in the case of VR, I would argue that they're pretty necessary. And, you know, they actually enhance what VR could be as opposed to like what VR would have been without it. Like there's no question that, you know, that kind of paved the way for a lot more interesting uh, interactions with VR. So the thought of like haptic feedback kind of d dictating to you or like kind of um, showcasing to you certain like weather and like feeling raindrops and stuff. I, I think if it's implemented well, it could be cool. But as somebody who does kind of lean towards, you know, the more competitive aspect of video games and the more online oriented aspect of, of video games, I, I do feel like this is a feature that if it was implemented in any real way in any multiplayer sandbox, I would probably choose to turn it off and if it's a single player kind of thing i'd probably choose to turn it off on my second run through the thing um because it, it it does seem a little bit gimmicky it does seem a little bit distracting maybe potentially or at least that's kind of what i'm assuming like what i have in my head is is kind of a kind of a cool novelty but something that i i wouldn't necessarily want every single time i turned on a video game yeah i just think there's too much interactivity with some of these ideas i feel like innovation has to come within the games themselves and not in the way necessarily we control them because right. it just seems like the controllers haven't changed in more than 20 years, really. That's true. Or about 20 years. Well, so you could, I feel like you could have said the same thing about Rumble, you know, like, oh, mm. who needs Rumble, really? You know, and there are some people who still argue like, oh, I turn Rumble off, but it's like, I think Rumble adds a lot and I think you really only notice it when you have like, the six axis, like the original six axis launch PS3 controller where it just didn't have rumble and it felt really weird 
to pull the trigger in a first person shooter and not feel some some semblance of feedback. So it could be that this is something that we experience once and then can't really imagine, you know, a future without it. I'm not necessarily betting on that, but it's it's possible. Well, I appreciate your open mindedness about it. Uh, yeah, we'll wait to see how it all turns out, because I think about audio coming out of the controller, which was something that started co- happening with DualShock 4. And it's not used very often, especially after launch. But I found that really obnoxious, especially with the handful of games where you really couldn't turn it off. It seemed like yeah. pretty, pretty yeah. bad idea. It's like it's like introducing like a game where you can't invert Y, which Ion Fury, by the way, is one of those games they have to patch. But where it's just like you should have thought about this. This just seems like such a thing that was made for QA guys in a QA office. And mm-hmm. you didn't think about the person that's playing next to their spouse in bed and doesn't want to fucking have audio diaries bouncing out of their, <laughs> out <laughs> yeah. of their controller. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, you're, pro- you're right about that. That one's, I think, a little bit more intrusive because a touch is kind of inherently something that's a lot more subtle than a lot of the other sensations. I would argue that like, uh, you know, Something like something like visual fidelity or something like sound is a lot more noticeable. And I do feel like the the I'm more worried about the microphone on the controller than I am about this. Like, I do think that there's a possibility that this could be kind of neat, if anything. But the mic on the controller just seems like such a genuinely like authentically horrendous idea. And I wonder how they're really going <laughs> to really going to make that work at all. Yeah, I don't I don't know either. I guess we're going to. I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, so hopefully they're showing this off. So people are out there other than Bithel and Wintery obviously are, are both under NDA and we might get some stuff imminently. We'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, Spencer Breland wrote in and asked us uh, what we're going to do for episode 100, which is next week. So I've been thinking carefully about this. I don't. I said this, I think, a couple weeks ago, Chris. I'm not crazy about special one-off episodes when the show is a new show so yeah when knockback episode 100 which is my nostalgia podcast i did with my brother when we that happened we did a really huge blowout because that's not really contingent on giving you the news or anything of this nature so what i think i'm gonna do if you're down for it it'll make for a long episode i think people will like it is when we get to the six questions comments concerns thoughts and ideas as tradition dictates at the end of the show We'll do 100 minutes of them. So I'll compile a bunch of it, time it, and we'll go for 100 minutes. You usually go for 15 or something like that. Yeah. And that will be a cool way to interact with the audience for a little while longer. But I don't want to disrupt the normal show because news happens every week. If people, I think a lot of people just don't care. Like they want to just listen to the show. Yeah. And so I think we should celebrate it. But I also think that we're going to have to do the normal run of show. What do you think? Yeah, that. I think that I think that makes sense. Or alternatively, we could spend the entire episode of the podcast uh, trying to do our best vocal interpretation of uh, all the PlayStation startup sounds for an hour and a half. Yeah, that sounds great. That's good too. We'll we'll go for a hundred minutes, more than an hour and a half. We <laughs> yeah. can do that. We'll go all day. Oh yeah, a hundred days, a <laughs> hundred hours. Yeah, we can uh, do something special for episode one hundred. We're gonna mix it up though, so it's. Because when I did Podcast Beyond at IGN, we did do these special blowout episodes. But I remember getting feedback of some people being disappointed because you just kind of miss a week of news. You just kind of miss a week of happenings. I think this is a really bad time to do something like that, too, because my suspicion, if some of the rumors we're going to talk about later are true, is that by episode 100, we might know when PlayStation is going to talk about PS5. And if not, then it'll definitely be, I think, episode 101. Johan Ivan 
Bavrovsky, Bavrovsky, Bavrovsky. Chris, he asks, what is the best cereal? Hmm. You know, honestly, I've fallen off a of cereal quite a bit mm. in, uh, in the last like year or two. I've just sort of stopped enjoying cereal as much as I used to. I, uh, I don't know what the best cereal is. I don't even know what cereal I like, really. I just sort of get... Wow. Like, I could genuinely like tell somebody, like, go pick me up some cereal, and they could bring home pretty much anything that isn't like Raisin Bran, and I'd be like, this is fine, and I'll That's eat hysterical. it. hysterical. Yeah. Because I was going to say, ra- I, my, in my mind, I was like, oh, Raisin Bran? And then you just you eliminated it with your <laughs> telekinesis immediately. Yeah. Like that's the, like stuff like that. That's like, Oh, you know, prune shells or like anything that's like ostensibly elderly. Right. You know, anything special like K. that. Yeah. Special yeah. K is like, eh, but like any of the, any of the big ones, like you bring, if, if somebody came home to me, like, and I said like, Hey, can you pick me up something? Pick me up one box of cereal. I don't care what it is. And they came back with Fruit Loops, Cinnamon Toast, Cap'n Crunch, Honey Nut Cheerios, even the plain default Cheerios that just taste like cardboard. Right. I'd be like, yeah, this works. I'm fine with it. Yeah. There's a place for Cheerios, for regular Cheerios, I think. There's a place I, at anyone's table for that. There's an enjoyable blandness to them where, mm. like, it's kind of like, I don't know if I'm Catholic, so this is like a specific memory that I have. But, like, whenever you would go to church and they would give you, like, that, the, the wafer, that, that, that uh, the body of Christ wafer. The host. Yeah, yeah, the host. I forgot that they was. Ah, that's kind of, it's kind of parasitic in the in the verbiage. But uh, when they would give you the host, they would be like, it would just taste like nothing. And there was something kind of like, ooh, this is kind of nice because it's it's not great, it's not terrible, it's just it's just subsistence. You know, that's that was the best part about going to church for me. Yeah, just getting like host. a free little cracker. Yeah, I think I said this on this show before, but when you know when you go up to the priest after you get your communion, then you can you can receive the host and they say the body of Christ and then they give it to you and you're supposed to say amen. amen. Yeah. But I for years, I just say thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I didn't know that I was supposed to say amen. <laughs> but no, you're you're right. I, I, I enjoyed the host. I always kind of wanted to get in and like, like this is I don't mean this to be sacrilegious at all, by the way, because we're, we're, I'm, I'm really not trying to be that way. But I always wanted to find like the bad, you know, the whatever bundle of hosts that they bought. I mean, it must be manufactured. Yeah. yeah. And just kind of eat it because it's good. Like I would like it always leaves you wanting more. Maybe that's the whole <laughs> analogy of the body of Christ. It always leaves you wanting more Jesus. You know, I have a case of 100 of them. Do you really? <laughs> I really I bought I bought it for a video because it was like a. It was like a Christmas gift. Uh, it was like a Christmas gift in the sketch that I was doing. It's like, oh, wow, 100 communion wafers, just what I wanted. And I, I bought it for real because I was, I was having the same thoughts that you were. I was just like, I just kind of want these. Lucky. It seems like you'll, you'll go to hell if you actually eat them, though. So uh, when you don't get them from a priest. Oh, yeah. If you eat too many in a day. Yeah, you don't want too much of the body of Christ. But best cereal. Yeah, so a lot of cereals come to mind. I actually never eat cereal. Like I've gone through these really weird like bursts and it hasn't happened since I was in California where I'm like, I'm going to go get a bunch of cereal and milk and then I eat it for like two days and then I'm like, I'm done with this and I just throw the rest of it away. Like half, half open stale cereal. Yeah. But I got to give a shout out to Lucky Charms. Definitely got to give a shout out to Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops, Fruity Pebbles. These are good cereals. Yeah. Uh, I also got to give a shout out to Honey Bunches of Oats with Almonds. Ooh. Honey Bunches of Oats with Almonds. They never put enough almonds in there, but I enjoy that cereal as well. And then the seasonal cereals like Booberry and Frankenberry, I'm all about those. And that was actually the last time that I bought cereal around September or October in California. 
I saw them like in the corner of my eye in the store and I was like, oh, shit, it's fucking time to go with Frankenberry and Blue Booberry. And I went I went to town on them. So were you ever one of those uh, remedial deficits that would cut their uh, they would cut their uh, gums on Captain Crunch? No, no, I never. Und- I, I heard that so much growing up and I never experienced it. And I used to fucking gorge myself on Captain Crunch. Like, like if anybody would have cut their gums on Captain Crunch, it definitely would have been me. And I never had that experience. But everyone Remedial talks about deficit. it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit mean. But like, that's such a ubiquitous story. Like, oh, Captain Crunch cuts your mouth. No, I'm a man. I don't need to be <laughs> cutting my mouth on, uh, on breakfast yeah. cereal. I, I like how you use remedial deficit as a noun, though. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Yeah, thanks. I like that. That's an insult. That's an insult I can stand. All right. Chris, David Graham has a... I don't know what this is really, but let's just read it. Colin featuring Chris, if you were to have a lengthy relationship with any of the seven dwarves from Snow White, which would it be? You would be required to cohabitate, though it does not necessarily have to be a sexual relationship unless you wish it to be. And then he says, I'm sorry. So, Chris, (laughs) your options right here. I forget their names. Yeah. So there's I think I'm looking at the Wikipedia article right now. So Doc, Grumpy, Happy bashful sneezy dopey and that's it i think is that all of them that's seven right one two three four five six seven that seems like there's only six there doc oh oh so i'm sorry it's doc grumpy sleepy happy bashful sneezy and dopey right so which one would you want to have a cohabitation cohabitating relationship with not necessarily sexual unless you wish it to be Right. Out of that group. I think I think Dopey would be the easiest to deal with because you could just trick right. him into leaving you alone. Mm. You know, you could even lock him in a room and he'd, he'd probably like starve and suffocate. And like no one's going to know about it because no one's who's going to be friends with Dopey. Right. You know, he's, he definitely doesn't have friends. Yeah, no, he definitely did. No one. I agree with you. No one's going to miss Dopey. Yeah. I will say that Sneezy would be impossible to live with. You assume that you'd want to murder Sneezy with your yeah, own especially now. hands. Especially now, he's, yeah. he's spreading some deadly contagion to you just by existing. Let's see here. I'm reading about this. Dopey is mute. Oh, thank God. So he's so, stupid and he can't talk? I guess so. <laughs> that's so That's so much worse than every single other one of those dwarves. Yeah. <laughs> that's so mean, that poor fucking animal. It says, yeah, it's a vocal. Dopey is the only dwarf who does not have a beard. He is mute with Happy explaining that he has simply never tried to speak. In the movie's trailer, Walt Disney describes Dopey as nice, but sort of silly. Hmm. Yeah, all right. I mean, that sounds fine because Happy is always is portrayed laughing. That's annoying. Bashful is the shyest of the dwarfs and is often embarrassed by the presence of any attention directed at him. See, that's another interesting. So Bashful might be a good one. He doesn't want to even be around you. Right. But his personality is driven on being embarrassed by being around you. Like, so he would mm. want to be around you just to feel embarrassed. Mm. Mm. Like, that's the whole it's his whole point. Yeah, I think I'm going with Dopey. I, th- I think that's the safest bet. Yeah, I don't want to be redundant, but I think Dopey is the obvious answer because but it sucks because how old are they? these guys look like they're all ancient, right? Yeah. They've been around. The, they've been around the woodlands for a while and this is supposed to be a voluntary cohabitation. Like you want to live with one of them. 
I would prefer not to live with any of them. I'm, are you going to get sexual with Dopey or? No, no. He's just no. on the side and like he's never going to he's never going to interact with me save for like maybe paying me rent. He pays rent, right? These 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 dwarves pay rent. They do something. I don't, they definitely I mean, they have clothes and food. I mean, they must do something. Maybe they have some sort of barter system going on with others that live around them. But maybe Dopey streams on Twitch. He might. He just he can't talk. So he just <laughs> yeah. He does art streams. He just puts on like lo-fi hip hop and draws. Yeah, exactly. He, maybe he puts on some slutty clothes too, and <laughs> and does his thing from there. God help us. What are we playing? So what are we playing? Yeah, let's talk about the games we're playing, Chris. I kick it over to you. It says Metal Gear Solid Two and Final Fantasy yeah. Seven. So talk to me about your experiences. Honestly, same. Uh, I have so little to report. It's the same. It's the same games I've been playing for the last two weeks. I've been so preoccupied with just working. I will say though that I'm starting to kind of get a little burned out on Final Fantasy VII. I'm, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm kind of falling off it a little bit. It's not, uh, it's not grabbing me as much, and I think it's just because I'm noticing a lot of. We we were talking a little bit about on a previous episode about so many locations and so many vignettes in Final Fantasy VII that just have you arbitrarily slow down for the benefit of the loading of the game, and uh, I'm just noticing that like more and more, like a lot of like often, and it's just kind of like. I guess I guess the game is paused again and it's just kind of like uh, I, I haven't really felt the urge to uh, blast through it and, and keep playing it lately, which kind of sucks. Yeah, I understand that. It's been so long since I actually picked it up that I might have to just start it again. Really? It can't be. Oh, come on. It can't be that long. I think it's been like a month probably since I've played it. Oh, shit. And we have to do the uh, spoiler cast in the coming weeks. You don't have to do it, by the way. If you, I, I don't want you to play it just to play it. There are other people I can do it with. Well, I do want to uh, play it. It's just like, yeah. it's just uh, some de- some decisions are kind of just grating on me. And it's like, okay, I get it. Yeah, I can understand that. I got to uh, I got to get back into that. I have other, some other stuff that I need to take care of more imminently. And then Metal Gear Solid 2, you're still cruising through on the Vita. Yeah, I play that every and night, like in my in my bed on my little Vita. It's, that's it's very really nice. That's where I play Vita as well. It's very fun to play Vita in bed. Uh, I have nothing crazy to report. Far Cry 3 Classic. I got the Platinum Trophy in. So that's Platinum Trophy number 97. And I did an episode of Knockback about it with my brother. So you guys can go listen to that if you'd like. Um, I'm playing Earthbound, which is doesn't really have a place on this show because it's an SNES game. I'm playing it on my SNES Classic and I'm doing that for Knockback as well. So I'll have a full discussion about that in the coming weeks. And then... Uh, in bed while I'm watching, I'm rewatching the West Wing for like the fourth time. Uh, yeah. I've been sitting in bed and then I've been playing uh, Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel on my Vita. And I'm a few hours into it now. I like it. It Dustin, our editor, described it to me over uh, not Twitter, over text, saying that it kind of feels like a budget persona. And it kind of does. It's this, it's a similar structure. It's about these kids that go to this, in this case, this military academy. So it's not realistic like persona is in some way where they like live in the real world. It's this uh, medieval style empire with like a class system and all this. Or, and I mean, by class system, I mean, there's like nobles and then there are like commoners, not classes like in Final Fantasy Tactics. And it's pretty verbose, but there are days of the week where just like Persona, where you have to do things and make social connections and everything. So it is a pretty deep and interesting game. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it forever, but I did want to give it a fair shot than I did when it came out in 2015. So that's what I've been playing currently now, Mafia 2 Definitive Edition is actually out on PS4 and I really want to play it, but I hear it's not running very well, which is ridiculous because that was a 10 year old PS3 game. 
<laughs> and so I do want to look at that. But also, as we'll find out in when we read the games that are coming out, Saints Row the third is now out on PS4. And I really wanted to go back to that game forever. And that's really kind of tempting me. But I know that I just need to keep my plate clear right now and get through some some more imminent stuff, because in the future weeks here on Knockback with my brother, I'm going to we're going to do Mass Effect, the original Mass Effect. And I've got to replay that. And that's going to be a what a 50 hour commitment. So, yeah, probably. I don't have any time for fucking chicanery right now. All right, Chris. Chicanery. I lo- I've been using that word a lot lately. I love it. That's yeah, good. It's a good, it's a good one. Yeah, thank you. All right. So the news, there's a lot of news to get through. When I was writing this last night, I didn't think that there was anything to really talk about this week of much interest, but there's actually quite a bit to talk about. So let's get through it all. We'll go in order as we always do. Number one, Sony has some big plans in the works to show off PlayStation 5, according to the website VentureBeat. And the first event may be only weeks away. For several months, an early to mid-June event has been rumored, and VentureBeat confirms this. The website notes in part, quote, First is a Sony event in early June. The company was originally planning this for June 4th, but is moving it around. The exact date is more nebulous now. Ellipsis. The early June time frame is still in the company's current plan, end quote. At this event, Sony will be showing off both first-party and third-party PlayStation 5 games, some exclusive and others not. However, as the date has moved, some plans in this regard may have changed. The console itself may also be shown off here for the first time, though that may wait until later in the summer. In August, Sony is then purportedly going to have a state of play event, similar to the one they did with Ghost of Tsushima just last week, which will show off both current gen and next gen games. This news comes on the back of a brief report from Bloomberg writer Takashi Mochizuki, who noted on Twitter that Sony CEO Kenichiro Yoshida said in part, quote, we will soon be announcing a strong lineup of PS5 games, end quote, perhaps corroborating Venture Beats story chris what do you think of this i mean it's i'm excited but i'm also kind of scared because i yeah. feel like uh it's it's a bit i i guess june is fine i guess that's like where e3 is supposed to generally happen and i guess i guess the whole pandemic situation has kind of thrown everybody off but i i i just feel like this should have happened a, a, a bit ago like a while ago but it's it's still cool like, I'm, I'm glad that we're finally approaching, like, tangible things and tangible news. Sure. Yeah. Better late than never. Yeah. I think, obviously, there would obviously not be a never. But I agree. They're kind of pushing this a little little further because we have to remember, if we're comparing apples to apples, really, PlayStation 4 was revealed in February of 2013, released in November of 2013. At that point, by this point, actually, we had already seen the controller, but not the console yet, I think. The, mm-hmm. contro- the controller leaked because I wrote about it. I was the one that leaked it back in the day. So we had a little bit more information. And even before that, we were talking a lot about Project Orbis, which was, as people might recall, the code name of PlayStation 4. So they're pushing this. If they assume we assume we want they want to release it in that same November time frame, they're pushing this pretty far. But we are seeing some of their partners, like we talked about Epic with Unreal Engine 5 last week and others showing off their next gen games in the ways that they feel like they need to to get the hype going. I assume in spite of Sony, because I think everyone is kind of just waiting to see more. But yeah, uh, Mike Ryan wrote into us on Patreon. Chris, he says, what's going on? CM Twinsies. Sony recently announced at a corporate meeting that they will be showing off big PS5 games soon, whatever that means. Now that we are finally gearing up into the next gen hype train, do you have any final predictions about what games will be shown off first? What about the major launch titles? Thanks for the hard work and great content. Take it easy out there. Chris, I think that and this is what I was saying about Sacred Symbols Plus and the kind of the timing of episode 100 and all of this. 
my hope is, is that they give us enough lead time in, in this announcement where we can get a Sacred Symbols Plus episode in talking just about this stuff. Yeah. So we can really sit down and sketch out exactly what we think is going to happen, predict the games we're going to see, maybe keep score in some game, have the player or the uh, the audience play along. So we'll get into this more deeply, but is there anything specific that you wanted to call out that you think will be there? Final predictions, major launch titles, anything like that? I'm going to save most of my stuff for the the inevitable episode of Sacred Symbols. Plus, yeah, I I, I'll save most of mine, too. But I, I do think based on just a hunch that there will probably be no, I, I don't think they're go- there's going to be a kill zone because I think Horizon is, is underway. And I think uh, the other teams at Gorilla are probably working on something a little bit different. But I do think to kind of fill that shooter vibe or that shooter niche, I do think that there's a pretty good possibility of a resistance trilogy or a resistance collection of some kind. Because they've just been, Insomniac's been tweeting resistance stuff like uncharacteristically often this year specifically. And it's very weird to assume that nothing is going to come from it. And it's so active that it would be weird to assume that it's something that's well off in the distance. So I think a safe bet would be something like that. Could be wrong, but that's that's my gut feeling on it. Yeah, that would be exciting. I know some people have pointed out that they've, they tweeted out pictures of other games as well, but that could just with Sunset Overdrive and stuff, but that could just indicate that Sunset Overdrive is also finally going to make its way over, which is possible. I think they have to make a deal with Microsoft for that, but deals happen behind the scenes all the time. As we've mentioned, Minecraft Dungeons is coming out next week from the time we're recording this, and that is a Microsoft published game from a Microsoft owned studio. So it's not really that un- uncharacteristic at this point that we could see something like that. But I agree with you. That would be really cool. And what would be really neat, Chris, is if the Resistance trilogy on PS4 and or PS5, it, it, if, if it was on PS4, it would just come to PS5 anyway. It would be a cool test balloon to see if they wanted to continue the series or not, because I think now that they have Insomniac back uh, under the fold completely and all of this and that with the exception of Resistance Retribution, which was a bend game that was good. The other experience with Resistance in the terms of Resistance Burning Skies was terrible. So getting those guys back on board, half of the creative team, creative leads still work there. Uh, Marcus Smith worked uh, at a high capacity on Spider-Man and on other games. And he was the creative director, co-creative director with a guy named Drew Murray. Drew Murray is actually one of the creative directors now at The Initiative. And uh, by the way, I went out to lunch with Drew Murray and he when he was in between jobs, he had quit. I think he was he quit Insomniac. I think he was uh, just kind of hanging out with his kids and figuring out what he wanted to do next. And I told him, I'm like, oh, did you know that there's a studio called The Initiative that's here in Santa Monica that you might want to look into. And, and he looked them up, applied and got the job. So and he ta- he's talked about that, about how I, I led him to that studio, which is hysterical. That's kind so of one that's of, the, kind of one, awesome. One of the great PlayStation talents uh, lost, of course, to uh, Xbox. But they still have a lot of the guys that work on these games over there. So I think that that would be a really compelling thing to do. I like your prediction. My prediction is actually also Insomniac related. I think you're definitely going to see Ratchet and Clank as a, a launch game for PS5. I've been saying that for a long time. I feel that in my gut and we will see how it all plays out bryce langford wrote in and said colin as of writing this it is may 19th we're recording this on may 21st and we have still yet to have an announcement from sony for the ps5 reveal why is sony waiting so long i know e3 has historically been a trade show where retail buyers would place uh, purchase allotments for the games being shown is this still a thing is there a certain time frame sony needs to showcase their games to retailers to make sure purchase allotments can be met what would be the latest Sony could foreseeably reveal their console without hindering the viability of the platform? Hmm. I don't. So I think that that's more of a concern, Bryce, with 
smaller publishers and entities. If you're a hardware manufacturer and you say we're going to have this PS5 ready to go, as long as you can manufacture enough of them, people are going to buy them. I mean, and by people, I mean purchasers like GameStop and Amazon and stuff. So I don't, I'm not sure that they're so worried about that. I don't know why they're waiting other than that it's possible. And I, I didn't see this really speculated in some of the other thing pieces I've seen, but it's easy to speculate that the demos necessary to do this are being hindered by coronavirus. People working at home, it's hard for them to circulate things. It also could be really risky. I mean, look what happened with The Last of Us Part Two, getting hacked and ruined for so many people. It's conceivable that as these things are transferred over PC and over networks that are clearly vulnerable to attack from the outside, that people can lose builds of games. And we're actually going to talk about a build of a game, an older game later on that had leaked in full uh, that exposed something actually rather interesting about a game we didn't expect to see on PlayStation. So, yeah, that would be my my assumption. Right. I mean, would you agree with that, that it's just it's just being slowed down by the current pandemic? Yeah, I I would. I would say that that's probably a fair assessment. I I think we've seen a lot of. uh... I think I think most, if not all, major studios are working from home, and that's just a... I don't think a lot of people really understand how weird that is, like, until they actually, like, do it consistently, because a lot of people have this, like, kind of romanticized idea of, like, working from home. It's like, ah, oh, I don't get to... I get to just wake up and just be at work, and it's, it's so productive, and, like, you know, I don't gotta... I don't gotta get dressed, I don't gotta do anything crazy, you know, I don't have to travel... There's like a lot of things that people think it's like, oh, it's pretty cool. But then you're on like day five of waking up in your what is essentially now your office and and you're just it's it's not as great as it seems like it is. So it's it's it is hard. Yeah, it's hard. So like, I don't know, you got a lot of people working in in ways that they're not used to. So that's definitely going to put a strain on pretty much any any project that's being crafted right now. Definitely. You have to have a lot of discipline. And I have a lot of discipline. So I, this is my sixth year of working from home and uh, I'm good at it. But uh, clearly, because the content goes out and all that, and I think it's of a, a high quality, but making games is so very collaborative, too, that it's you have to create entirely new structures. It's yeah. in, in which you up, a lot of studios, especially as they get closer to alpha, start compiling builds every day. It's probably really hard to do that remotely. I, I know that there's middleware and tools that they use to do that, but I just think yeah. It's probably not easy to make these games in collaborative natures because we made Twin Breaker remotely, but there's only two of us working on the game along with some artists. If you're making a game like uh, Ratchet and Clank, that's a that's probably a team of at Insomniac North Carolina of probably 75 people or more. And you have to collaborate in some yeah. in some way and be on Slack or do whatever you have to do. I don't know. It's and community and just communicating in general is a lot harder over text, because like if you if you're in a development studio and you need to talk to the art department. You, you go down to the art department and talk to them like, hey, what do we think about this? And then you walk back up to your office or wherever or your little cubicle. And then that's that's like maybe like five minutes. But like if you need it now, you got to like, OK, what's this guy's username on this weird app again? OK, I got to find him. All right. Uh, type it out. Then wait for a response because there's a chance he's not looking at his messages because he's working also. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things to consider. Definitely. So I wouldn't be too worried about the lateness. It's just it is frustrating, but I wouldn't worry too much about it. If this was like late July, I'd be like, ooh, (laughs) you know? Yeah, that would really be pushing it. And that would really suggest at that point that the console is not even coming out this year. But Sony keeps saying that it is. And I think that they're pushing it to the border of when that would be viable because the console will be out in about. If you assume like a 
around Black Friday or before in mid-November. It's six months away. So the consoles are being made like as we speak. They have to be. So we will see what happens. We have an interesting question here I wanted to read out that's tangentially related to this from Aaron Rosin or Aaron Rosin. Who knows how you say that? It's two S's. So maybe it's Aaron Rosin. He says, what's up, gentlemen? So Sony has just commented about revealing games and other things soon, seemingly confirming the recent rumors of an early June event. I've seen some talk about what they may show and some people asking others what they like to see. Personally, I'm hoping to see Project Awakening again. I'm not sure if either of you know the game. It has a trailer, which I believe was actually the second one it got back in September of 2018. Since then, we've heard nothing else about it. It's being developed by Psy Games, a fairly unknown studio, and the game was said to be a PlayStation exclusive. It looked like a very high quality mix of Dark Souls and Monster Hunter. I was very interested in it, but I am now concerned with its silence at this time and all this time. I'm sorry. And I fear we're getting yet another deep down situation, which, by the way, has never been officially canceled as far as I know. Something you claimed last episode. This is true. They say that it is still I've heard different things about deep down. I've played deep down, so it exists in some in some format. I played it in Japan once. My question is, have either of you seen the game and what do you think of it? Do you think we'll see it again or will it be lost to time like other games in the past have? And if it does ever see the light of day again, do you think it could be a good second party title to have for PlayStation, the PlayStation lineup, possibly even being a PS5 release title? Colin, I've been a fan of you since the kind of funny days. I only started listening to the podcast in recent time, but I've been enjoying it quite a bit. And I'm thankful to have a video game podcast to listen to again. You've both given me some good laughs as well. I appreciate having you two to listen to every week. Cheers. Aw, thanks, man. Thanks, Aaron. That's very nice. So, Chris, Project Awakening is is this interesting game from, and he said it's from Psy Games. Now, yeah. people might not know Psy Games, but they've actually come up a lot recently uh, on this show. So they used to make a bunch of Android and iOS games, but they started in just 2015, actually, a Vita game called Wondership Q was their first game that wasn't an iOS or Android game. But they are actually the guys that we talk about in the Grand Blue Fantasy versus and Grand Blue Fantasy Relink games. Those are the kind of arc system work developed side game assisted PS4 uh, games that have some popularity that I think are based on these anime and Grand Blue Fantasy Versus actually came out back in March. Grand Blue Fantasy Relink is coming out at an unknown time, both available on PlayStation 4. And by the way, if people remember that there was a Zone of the Enders uh, PlayStation 4 game as well called uh, Mars Anubis. That was also by them, published by Konami. So they are a somewhat independent entity. And this game, did you look into when you did you look into this at all from the notes? Yeah. This Project Awakening. So what do you I think? It, I think I hadn't seen the trailer in a long time. People can actually go to projectawakening.com slash EN and see screenshots and video for yourself of this dormant game. It does look just like Monster Hunter. It's really beautiful. Is this something you want to see reemerge? Yeah, I mean, it'd be cool to see it, just especially because they, you know, there's footage of it existing. So you would hope that you would hope that it would eventually, you know, exist. But I, I did look at the trailer like when it came up in the notes and I was like, I, I was watching the trailer and I was like, oh, my God, this I almost mixed deep down and this game into the same thing when I, in, like in my memory. Because I was like, this looks like Deep Down, doesn't it? It's like, and I look back, I was like, oh wait, it, it doesn't, but it, it kind of does. It's the camera's just a little bit further out, basically, but it looks super similar. And it's like, wow, I totally forgot about this game entirely. Like, not even a, a remote part of my brain was like recognized it as a Project Awakening, you know, like from a namesake perspective. Right. I was like, right. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what the delay is on this. I was reading a little bit about it. 
So the game's producer is Kenichiro Takai, uh, uh, Takaki, rather. I'm sorry. I think I'm saying that right. He was a producer at the Japanese studio Marvelous for a long time and worked on the Senran Kagura game. So he has some pedigree. He was there for a long time and then went to Psy Games to start working on this title. And he had said in an interview that the game may become a PlayStation. He said this last year, actually, at E3, that the game may be ported to PlayStation 5. So it's kind of smart to think, Aaron, that this game might reemerge as a PlayStation 5 game. The delay could possibly be because Psy Games is self-publishing. And this seems to be a game ambitious enough where maybe you want a Western publishing partner. And so maybe that's something they're working on as well. But maybe we'll see this. I mean, I think that this is a game that I hadn't thought about. So I appreciate him bringing it up. And I think it's a distinct possibility that we do actually see this game reemerge, especially with Psy Games' kind of emergence with their work on Grand Blue Fantasy. So and especially because the website is still operational. Usually it is. It is still operational. Usually that's a pretty good sign. Yeah, so you again, you guys can go check it out if you want to see it for yourself, if you don't remember it or need a refresher, projectawakening.com slash EN. Thank you again, Aaron, for your thoughtful question. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Chris, number two, last week we talked in great detail about Sony-owned Sucker Punch's upcoming PS4 exclusive Ghost of Tsushima, which is due out in July and which was just shown off in full in recent days. Now, website IGN has some extra details not included in the 18-minute State of Play demo, answering some questions we had and speculation we put forth about what the game might have in store for us. For starters, the game's creative and art director, Jason Connell, told the website that the game is, quote, a lot bigger than Infamous Second Son. It's definitely Sucker Punch's biggest game we've ever made by a landslide, both in the amount of stuff that's in it and also just sheer landscape square footage wise, end quote. Interestingly, however, he declined to talk about predicted hours a player might take to get through the game, noting that the experience will differ by person. It's worth noting that the three games in Sucker Punch's infamous trilogy each took about 20 hours or less to 100 percent. It doesn't sound like the game's open world will be immediately open either, taking less from Bethesda's design playbook and more from Ubisoft's, with possibly segmented areas that only open up after you get through certain story beats. Meanwhile, a major open question for us was in regard to if there would be some sort of karma system, which was the hallmark of the infamous games, and which seemed to be hinted at in the State of Play video. However, it isn't so. Connell said in part, quote, We realized it was more important to us that we wanted to tell a human story of someone who is this way and has to evolve into something else versus transform completely into something else. He doesn't flip flop back and forth. Ellipsis. We don't make you choose between samurai and ghost End quote. 
Sucker Punch was founded in 1997 and purchased by Sony in 2011. Its Sly Cooper trilogy on PlayStation 2 ran from 2002 to 2005, and its infamous trilogy on PS3 and PS4 ran from 2009 until 2014. Ghost of Tsushima will be the studio's first game in six years. What do you think of that, Chris? Those were two major questions we had about the nature of the open world. He also talks a little bit about the different biomes in the game, which is cool. So there's like, you know, going to be like a grasslands and forests and mountains, whatever. Yeah, that could be expected. And then he talks about there being no karma system, which I thought that they were hinting at because samurai is, is kind of like the honorable way to play. Ghost is kind of like the ninjutsu right. sneaky way to play. It seems like you can just flip between them entirely. How do you feel about these uh, revelations from Sucker Punch? Uh, I don't know if they add or detract anything from my excitement. Uh, I'm I'm looking for I I look forward to the game more as time goes on, just because like I really like the aesthetic and like I keep looking back at the trailers and it's like this is a really cool looking world and I bet it's gonna just be like a beautiful game to go through. But I don't know if I really was like you know I don't know if my excitement was hinging on like some kind of karma system. Although the messaging is still kind of confusing because they do kind of use you know honorable and dishonorable in ways that you would kind of use them if you were talking about a karma system. So it makes sense to me that that, and especially because it's them making the game, like it makes sense that they would have uh, stoked some confusion. Definitely. It seems to me that maybe this was in the design DNA from the beginning and they changed course at some point because it just seems that way. Like yeah. it just, that's, that's their whole pedigree going back to the original infamous and I know that you don't want to like make the same game over and over again. There's a lot of different there are a lot of differences between Sly Cooper and Infamous and, and there are a lot of differences between Infamous and Ghost of Tsushima. And so that's really cool. I know you don't want to keep doing that over and over again, but you can't really blame people for getting that that vibe from it. And I actually so I am excited about this game, too. I have to say, I'm, a, I'm not less excited to play it now because we know that it's going to be a more linear karmic path, but I'm a little disappointed. I was kind of hoping for that because one of the cool things about Infamous Infamous 2 and Second Son were that you played them twice to get the entire experience. You couldn't see everything in the game without having played it one way and one and the other way. And I, I was kind of looking forward to it. If the game looks as good as it is or it does, then I would play it twice for sure. I have the platinum trophies in the infamous games, so I would have definitely played it twice. So that was a little bit disappointing. It seems a little bit more stilted based on what they were saying that I was hoping. And um, yeah, but I'm looking forward to it, too. I, I was a little surprised by some of the feedback we got about our conversation on this game, though, because people were being like, you're so negative. I think I even lost like a patron or two saying like, you guys are so negative about games. And I'm like, really? Really? I like went back and listened to some of it. And I'm like, I'm not going to feign outrageous excitement and tell you to pre-order games and spend your money and stuff. If I'm not, first of all, I'm not going to tell you to do that with any game I like, nonetheless, don't like, but I'm just being honest with you. I think the game looks great. I'm really excited to play it. I like Sucker Punch. I don't know what else I can possibly say other than that. Yeah, I will I, say, though, I, I, that the game doesn't the game doesn't look revolutionary to me at all. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand why people are talking about this game like it is more than it seems to be. We're all seeing the same footage, by the way. So that's my weird interpretation. There's also yeah. like a game doesn't have to be revolutionary to be great. You know, exactly. Like you yes. can see something and says like that looks like a lot of things I've seen before. I want to play it a lot, though. You know, like what was like Doom Doom specifically like Doom Eternal is just more Doom. And I loved it, and that's exactly what I wanted. It doesn't have to be this reinvention of the wheel and just admitting that something doesn't look revolutionary or admitting that something doesn't look necessarily as, like, high-quality tier as, you know, some of the animation in The Last of Us 2 or, or God of War or anything like that isn't, isn't saying that the game is bad. Like, I thought Spider-Man 
Spider-Man was one of the best games that I'd played on the PS4 period. I platinum that game. And even I was like, yeah, of, of the of the exclusives that have come out in the last like couple of years, this is definitely the one that looks a little bit janky. Cuz it does. Like everybody looks kind of weird. They look clay-facey, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. It's just an observation. Yeah, I agree. I don't think we're I agree. I, I don't think we're really that negative, honestly. No, I don't I don't think I don't think we're that negative generally speaking. I think that some people listen to podcasts that are, that are if anything too positive. Right. We want I just want to be realistic. I'm not going to be excited about every game. I think it's great if you're excited about games that I'm not. And we tried to prove with the Persona 5 Royal spoiler cast, which neither of us were on, that we also want to give due to games that we're just not going to play. So it's important to keep an open mind. And I'm incredibly open minded and, and looking forward to playing this game. I just am confused about some of the conversation around this game because it just looks it doesn't look pedestrian or anything like that. It looks fun. But there's nothing I can point out. Not one thing in that game I point out where I'm like, that's that looks exceptional. Yeah, and that, that there's nothing. And I felt that way about I felt like Horizon did exceptional stuff and others. So that's all I'm saying. I would love to be wrong. I love Sucker Punch. They've taken a long time to make this game. So hopefully it it works itself out and uh, we'll find out in just a couple of months. Yeah, if it's any good or not. I feel like I'm going to like it a lot. I feel like it's going to be great. I, I would be surprised if it's not. Uh, but I am not going to be surprised if I like The Last of Us Part Two a hell of a lot more. So right. we're going to find out. And, and obviously, these games are only comparable because of two things. They're both PlayStation 4 exclusives from first party studios, and they're coming out a month apart. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we're going to compare them. I'm not I'm not comparing Ghost of Tsushima to Days Gone because they're two years apart from each other. But it's obvious that you're going to compare these two games, which is one of the reasons why you might not want to have released them so close together and in this sequence, as I've been saying. But we'll find out how it all works out. Chris, the other inquiry we got here, Corey wrote in and said, hi, CNC, long time, first time. Congrats on the new house and puppy, Colin. Thank you. And congrats to you, Chris, for getting out of that roach infested apartment. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Not, yeah. He's not out yet. Not yet, but we're working towards it. They might plan uh, some sort of uh, last minute sabotage of his plans to, to keep him in that apartment forever. They're going to hide in my PlayStation. Yeah, they're going <laughs> to. They're, they're going to. It's going to be like a, a Vietnamese, like a Viet Cong style. <laughs> Gorilla ambush the Trojan horse right my question revolves around open world games and their ubiquity in the games industry for a while but also in light of the ghost of Tsushima reveal last week in your opinions where do you draw the line between being innovative versus iterative checkbox check collectathons and open world games have we hit critical mass with open worlds or is there still space to innovate in this flooded market certainly there are open world standouts like the Witcher 3 and Red Dead Redemption 2 however many open world games fall into the general category of collect this do that Sucker Punch has a great track record, but Ghost of Tsushima, I keep seeing GOT and want to say Game of Thrones, yeah. is an unproven IP in a sea of open world games and action RPGs like the Neo games and Sekiro in the past few years. Hope you are both staying safe and saying and well. Thank you so much, Corey. Welcome to Patreon. Thank you for submitting your question. So Ghost of Tsushima seems to be more of a checkbox game to me. I don't necessarily dislike those games. Actually, I'm a huge fan of like Ubisoft some Ubisoft games, particularly Far Cry, which are completely checkbox games that really do get repetitive after a while. But there's something about that rhythm I really like. But he calls out, Chris, two standout games in the open worlds, Witcher 3 and Red Dead Redemption 2. And I think the things that those games have, especially Red Dead, which is arguably the most impressive game ever made, I think, Red Dead 2, is that there's incredible levels of detail in every aspect of the world, whether it's just environmental storytelling, which I think Witcher 3 does exceptionally well with all the battlefields and the bodies everywhere and stuff. Yeah. Or with Red Dead 2, where there doesn't seem to be any empty space, any empty opportunity for something dynamic to happen, not something automatic or something just to be collected. I think about 
like the paleontologist collecting bones and the woman stopping you on the road so she can like get away from her abusive husband and like you have to get her back to a place. There's just so much dynamism in these games and that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money, which is why you might not see a Red Dead game for more than a decade and you're not going to see a Witcher 4 for probably a really long time too because they're working on Cyberpunk and Grand Theft Auto 6, obviously. So I feel like Ghost of Tsushima definitely isn't going to be a game like that. And that's okay like you said there's a place for those kinds of games but when you have these what he calls open world standouts does it diminish do you think chris the games that don't quite do it that way do we is it fair to compare it to those games i think it's fair to compare it but i think it's important to recognize that there's no there's not there's no value that's intrinsic to something that is being lost by it not being something else like you can play a game like Ghost of Tsushima, and even if it is a checkbox style kind of almost a rhythm game in that in that way, that doesn't mean it really. It doesn't mean it's worse than Red Dead Two or that it's worse than Witcher because it's obviously aiming for a different style of play. Like the intent of the developer is really like maximum level important as far as judging like the quality of a game. Because if a game like Death Stranding, you know. If it makes you bored, that's one thing. But if it makes you bored intentionally, like if that's part of the game almost, then I don't know if you could really fault the game for that because it's it's doing what it's supposed to. Like it's doing what it's set out to do. And if Ghost of Tsushima is trying to sell you on this kind of samurai ninja adventure where you're just sort of slowly upgrading your character and you're, you know, collecting this to to dye your armor and you're collecting this to upgrade your your abilities and your stats, and that's what the game does. Even if you don't like that, I, f- I feel like if that's the point of it, then they've done a good job. Yeah, intent is everything. And then I guess the interpretation of that intent yeah. is, yeah, I think you're right from that point of view. Because now the, the one thing that I think Ghost of Tsushima seems to do really well that I'm really actually most excited about is the the combat looks really fun. But actually the the lack of waypoints and kind of using environmental cues yeah. to find things, I think is actually really compelling. It's pretty uncommon because it's hard to not gamify an open world in some way because it almost demands it. So to yeah. go into a, a project and say like, we're not going to gamify this. You're going to find this, this shrine by following this random bird that's flying through the air. Or like you're going to run into this Fox and he's going to guide you to this thing, or there's going to be like a smoke plume in the, uh, in the distance. And that's how you know where you need to be. It's kind of compelling. I'm a little afraid that for more casual people or less patient people that that might not be good enough. But for someone like me, that's actually probably the most compelling aspect of the game yeah. is being able to find your way with these kind of environmental cues. I, I totally agree. I think that's that's the part of the game that I'm definitely most excited about. It's a little bit jarring, though, to see that kind of reliance on or that kind of unreliance on gamifying your content mixed with like you know, the stealth sections where you've got that typical like arc with the with the arrow pointing at you to let you know whether or not you're being spotted. I, I wish they could have d- did something a little bit more world appropriate for that. I don't know how they would have done it, I guess, but I don't know. That was that was something that I was like, oh, man, you, you were doing such a good thing in the open world. And then in the combat, it's kind of it becomes a game, you know? Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. Yeah, it has that Far Cry style semicircle thing that yeah. fills up when enemies see you and yeah, it would be interesting for them to do something more organic. But like you said, I don't know 
how that would have worked but yeah i bet you could disable the hud like you could do that in most games yeah. anyway sure yeah and hudless games are really attractive but they're also not easy to play so the the word about this game is that it might be pretty hard i hope that it's not sekiro or dark souls or whatever hard that would really that would be obnoxious that's the kind of stuff that i actually don't feel like belong in open worlds i want to be able to play an open world i like it when it's difficult and, and you have to be deliberate but i don't want to i don't want to play a game where like the sword combat is so exacting that that's the stuff that has turned me off from these from software games for instance so right We'll see how it all works out there. But Corey, thank you again for your thoughtful question. Brent Linquist wrote into us. He said, hey, fellas, Ghost of Tsushima looks cool. But is there any part of you that wishes that Sucker Punch had gone back to the well once more for Infamous 3? I can't help but think there was more to tell regarding Cole. So, yeah, from the Cole perspective, it would have been Infamous 3. It's really Infamous 4. But I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I this is kind of contradictory and maybe even a little hypocritical for me to say, because I do like when uh Studios like Sucker Punch explore new things, but I do feel like there was more for them to do with Infamous. And it's kind of shitty to know that we're probably never going to see another Infamous game. Are you a fan of the series at all, by chance? I liked the gameplay of it, but I I don't think I paid attention to like any of the story at all. So like narratively, I, I don't really... I'm not really that invested in any of the infamous characters. I just I just like the idea of being like a superpowered dude running through the streets. I like those games in general. Like every every kind of game where you give me powers in an open world is fun. Like even if it's just kind of like mindless nonsense where you're just sort of shooting electric bolts out of your hands at people who really don't deserve it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just fun. So it's hard to argue against that being fun. But I, I don't know. I, I would prefer to see something new especially just because like for somebody like me that's never really it's never really gotten into the narrative side of infamous like I'd, i don't know if i'd really be that keen on an infamous three without having seen what sucker punch can do without that without that uh ip because for as long as i've been a functioning adult like infamous has just been that studios that's that's just what they've made like since right. I like uh, when did the infamous one come out? 2009. Two, yeah. 2009. And then the sequel 2011 and then second son 2014. Yeah. I was, I was in high school in 2009. So like all uh, up until now, the only game that I really know sucker punch from is infamous. Even though I've I, like, I missed the Sly Cooper boat that I wasn't like in that area at the time. And it, it's nice to just see them do something else. Yeah, I it's six of one and a half dozen of the other for me because yeah. I do like this the way this game lo looks. I think it's a cool subject matter. Ghost of Tsushima, this Mongol invasion, 13th century Japan. You're a samurai. It's pretty cool. But yeah, I really loved playing Infamous. Like Infamous was really fun. It was fast. It was kinetic. It was dangerous. It was a lot of these different yeah. things that were really quite compelling to me. I remember Infamous when it came out in 2009. I was still writing strategy guides at IGN and it really snuck up on me. I, I really didn't anticipate that this game was going to be so good. And the sequel is even better, I think. And then Second Son, the problem with Second Son was that it Delson was just not an interesting or likable character. Yeah. And so that kind of ruined the game. But from a gameplay perspective, the game was fucking awesome. The game was really fun to play from a gameplay perspective. And then, they, of course, they had First Light with the, I can't remember her name, one of the girls that you meet in the game yeah, one the of punk, the punk looking girl yeah and there's cool skills like neon was one of the skills and stuff so it was like a really 
clever thing. And I, I would have and I obviously like the karmic system and playing the games twice and all of that. I think it's really cool. So I, it is a little disappointing just because I and the other thing, obviously, is that infamous one and two are conspicuously absent from PlayStation four, just like resistance, where it's like you can't even natively play these games and it sucks because they're so good. It would have been cool for them to re-release them so we can play them again. Yeah. All right. Chris, number three. This is a really weird one. This has been making rounds a lot. Mm-hmm. A new video making the rounds appears to show Gears of War 3 launched exclusively on Xbox 360 way back in 2011, running on PlayStation 3. A YouTuber known as Pixel, Bus- uh, Pixel Butts posted a complete playthrough of the game that's interestingly dated from before Gears 3 came out. The game launched in the fall of 2011. The build is from that spring. While some thought this footage dubious, website Kotaku has confirmed with its sources that the PS3 build of the famous Xbox exclusive franchise is real. The website also got confirmation from the series original developer, Epic Games, that the build is part of a tech test for Unreal Engine 3 and was never intended for commercial release. It's worth noting that at the time Gears 3 launched in 2011, Epic still owned the franchise outright and could have launched it on PS3. Microsoft published the Xbox 360 trilogy of games, but didn't outright acquire the IP until 2014, at which point Microsoft created the studio, the initiative. It's not the, it's the coalition. I wrote the initiative here, but it's the coalition yeah. to take over development from Epic. No Gears of War game has ever seen release on a PlayStation console going back to the original's launch in 2006. And these days, Epic is known far more for its Unreal Engine and the mega popular Fortnite than for any work it did on Gears. Benito wrote into us on Patreon and said, hey, Colin, Chris, did you see on Twitter some guy got a PS3 dev kit with a port of Gears of War 3 on it? Cliffy B weighed in and said he thought it was fake, but a bunch of super well-known people were stressing that it was indeed legitimate. Take a look at the video when you have a chance if you haven't seen it already. Anyway, have a great day, guys. Thank you, Benito. Chris, did you watch this footage? I did. What did you think? It's uh, kind of weird. It, it's yeah. d- it's definitely not running the best. <laughs> no, like uh, certainly not. It's definitely choppy, but it, it was kind of, and I think it had the same button prompts from the 362. Like it didn't have, uh, or at least from what I remember, like there. No, I, it, I, it did. That's that's why people didn't believe it was real until the guy showed the cross media bar for the PS3. Yeah. 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 I, I skimmed through it and it was like, oh, this is kind of neat. I, I assume. I I don't know like I just kind of assume that if a game exists it can run on anything so like these kinds of things don't really surprise me that people just sort of fuck around with it in the in the actual dev studios and actually like hey you know what let's run Breath of the Wild on a PC I'm sure you can I'm sure it looks amazing <laughs> but you know this is one of those things where it's like ah it's just it's I was more interested in the, in that Prince of Persia game that 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 leaked that yeah we talked one. about that a couple of weeks ago yeah people should definitely go look at that. That's from that's around that era a little bit before because it was before Assassin's Creed three. Yeah, it was like 2006, that, 2007. Yeah, um, this would have been 2011. Again, the compiled build on PS3 was from May of 2011. The game came out, I think, in October or November of 2011. That's the last Gears game I actually played all the way through. Yeah. And it was interesting because Cliffy B obviously would know, but he was wrong because Epic had later confirmed that it was real and not meant to be leaked widely, obviously, and it was really just a test for Unreal Engine 3. But Gears has long been this series. A lot of PlayStation fans will know this. This has been a series because of its kind of second party relationship until 2014 with Microsoft that people speculated would come eventually to PlayStation. And I remember there being a really compelling but fake leak of something called Gears Redux. I don't know if you remember this. It was leaked around E3 in like 2013 or 2012. That was apparently going to be the original Gears of War on PlayStation 3. It ended up being fake, but it ended up being compelling because these were the games that we thought we might be able to get from Xbox because of that relationship before the sale of the IP outright. So it's just a cool little piece of 
trivia. If yeah. anyone wants to go check it out, you can find it on YouTube and uh, written on and mirrored on various websites. But obviously, Epic doesn't control Gears anymore. As you'll recall, they said Gears was becoming too expensive for them to make. That's why they unloaded the franchise. I imagine it was becoming expensive to make largely because they had to relegate it to one console, which is why I feel like there's a more than meets the eye with this build. But maybe it was just something that they were fucking around with just in case. I don't think it had anything to do with testing Unreal Engine 3 because Unreal Engine 3 was running on PS3 long before Gears came out. Unreal Tournament and other games like that were running on Unreal Engine 3 early in the yeah. console's life cycle. So uh, something to consider there. So I think that there's much more than meets the eye here. But it is cool to see the game running on PS3. It is, like Chris said, interesting to see the game using Xbox button prompts, which it was until the guy goes into the cross media bar. And Unreal Tournament, actually, so it says Gears of War 3 on the cross media bar, but it has like Unreal Tournament's like logo next to it. It's all very weird. So <laughs> yeah. People can go check it out on YouTube if you like. Number four, it should come as no surprise that a new Call of Duty game is slated to launch this fall, as one does each and every year. But you may be a little more surprised by the nature of the game. According to a report on website Eurogamer, this fall's Call of Duty game will be called Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War and may act as a soft reboot of the original Black Ops game and idea, which, as Eurogamer notes, was what Infinity Ward got to do with its storied Modern Warfare sub-franchise in 2019. The mega-popular free-to-play Call of Duty Battle Royale game Warzone is seemingly teasing an imminent reveal with Cold War-related bunkers, though little else is currently known about the game, though it's presumed to be both a current-gen and next-gen game, meaning you'll be able to play it on both PS4 and PS5. The Call of Duty series began in 2003 by developer Infinity Ward and has since circulated between Activision-owned teams Infinity Ward, Treyarch, and Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer should be up next based on the three-year rotation publisher Activision had instituted, but rumor is that Treyarch stepped in this year, breaking the cycle following the release of Black Ops 4 in 2018, and the rumored return to Black Ops seems to confirm that rumor. Chris, does this do anything for you? No, although I will say that it's it's kind of interesting that we're getting to the point where like Call of Duty games with subtitles are now having subtitles yes <laughs> like call of duty black ops cold war yeah yep. call of duty modern warfare black ops cold war world at war <laughs> like like what <laughs> what's going on like this is get, we're reaching like critical mass with like how much you can stretch this thing i agree it's a little so i understand that they're doing it for marketing reasons for black ops but yeah it would be cool if it was called call of duty cold war i think that would have been just a cooler name but yeah but I know that they want to get that Black Ops name in there to kind of tease Treyarch's involvement. It was so funny. I've said this in the past, but Treyarch used to be like the redheaded stepchild of, of Call of Duty games back like when World at War came out and all of that. And yeah. Infinity Ward was like the shit. And then it just totally reversed itself yeah. at some point. Yeah. When Infinity Ward just kind of left to make uh, Titanfall, then they became like the kind of secondary studio. And then Treyarch with uh, I think they made Black Ops, right? Treyarch made Black Ops. Wait, wait, what do you mean Infinity War? When you, oh, what do you mean the guys? The guys, left? like, yeah, yeah, when the team basically, like, kind of, like, disbanded. Didn't they have, like, a whole, right. like, lawsuit and everything? Right. They, you're right. Activision sued. So, yeah, for people that don't remember, a lot of the leadership spun off of Infinity War to found Respawn, and then they started working with EA. I think EA didn't buy them immediately, but then later did, obviously. And then there was a lawsuit between the publishers, and then Infinity War is kind of like a shell of it's just like a name at this point of its former self, which is true for some other studios like it as well. But yeah. and and they may, may still make good games, but it is interesting to kind of see that reversed. It's important to note that Sledgehammer was on schedule to make their game this year, and apparently it was it was all fucked up and they were basically removed from the project. So we don't know the full story behind that yet. Yeah, know? but still this this 
it's just so wild to me that like you can have a game like Call of Duty and the brand recognition of Call of Duty isn't enough, so you have to do Black Ops because like oh, there's a lot of people who like Call of Duty, but they only like Black Ops Call of Duty. And it's just like what right. the hell is this? This is so strange. It is weird. Yeah. yeah, I would like to see them drop that Black Ops and hopefully just call it Cold War, but I'm not being uh, I'm not uh, confident of that. It, it actually reminds me of so mod- what was it Modern Warfare 2's original campaign was remastered and re-released recently and they call it Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 campaign remastered. It's like Jesus Christ, man. You got to find out a more elegant way of saying this. All right, number 5. PlayStation Now, Sony's cloud gaming service on PS4 and PC is trucking along nicely. According to a report on website Push Square, the service now totes 2.2 million subscribers, far below its near competition in the form of Xbox's Game Pass, but respectable numbers nonetheless for a service that only eight months ago had a mere 1 million subscribers. PS Now has been burning slow for Sony. It launched over six years ago, but it's the realization of what could be an essential vertical for the publisher and hardware manufacturer moving forward. The service was built upon the cloud gaming service Gaikai, which it purchased in 2012 for a mere $380 million, a prudent investment at a time when cloud gaming was still largely hypothetical. PlayStation Now could be purchased for $9.99 a month, $24.99 for three months, or $59.99 for a year, and currently has more than 800 games available for it across PS2, PS3, and PS4. And you can natively download those PS2 and PS4 games. You cannot download the PS3 games. You have to play them over the cloud. Chris, what do you think of this? 2.2 million active subscribers for PlayStation Now. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. They've definitely grown uh, since they lowered the price all that, all those many, many, many months ago. The I like the premise of PlayStation Now. I just, I do feel like they should have figured out how to get this PS3 situation sorted by now. And it's kind of confusing to me that they haven't. It must be, it must be like a Herculean task, you know? At this you would point. assume so. Because like, yeah. they would have done it already, surely, if they could. You know, they're not going to hold it off. Unless they are holding it off, which is like super scummy. <laughs> like for PS5, be like, hey, you can play PS3 games natively. huh? Yeah, like, it, it could be. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them. And that is a compelling thing. Because I think that's what's most interesting about PS now is the PS3 catalog. That seems to be the yeah. most robust and most interesting catalog of the three games. And Well, it's because so, well, it's because so many titles on PS3 are just straight up unavailable. Like there's a lot of right. PS4... There's a lot of PS4, PS2 games that are like available in like remastered forms or like, you know, you've got the Spyro Reignited trilogy, you've got Crash Bandicoot Reignited, you've got Crash Team Racing, you have like Medieval. So you got like full on remakes and then you have these ports that you can download physically, like uh, Destroy Humans and, and War of the Monsters and stuff like that. But the PS3 is like the only one that's like elusive and it's and there's so many titles on it that are like endemic to PlayStation's DNA, especially like in the like mid, late to uh, early 2010 or the late 2000s, early 2010s. That's just completely absent from people's machines. Now they have to sort it out. It's yeah. important. I do understand the argument that this isn't as important as we think it is. I think that's true because we're an enthusiast market, I guess, but I, I think it's still really relevant. I mean, I, it's just one of those things because game pass and just the Xbox ecosystem can go all the way back to the original Xbox in some way. Now that's yeah. 19 years. And that's fucking cool. I'm not saying everything's going to work. I'm not saying they're bringing everything forward. But the, the, the very possibility of that happening is cool. And yeah. Sony's got to have something similar, especially because I think Sony just has a much more interesting lineage in this regard. Mm-hmm. And I think that they need to wrap. I would love to see PS1 wrapped in the PlayStation now yes. as a subscription service. Without a doubt. They got to get that figured out. I think it would be really cool to see PSP and Vita games ported in some way. And I'm not saying again every PSP game or every Vita game, it's especially going to be hard for Vita because of the touch functionality. But 
What's stopping them from bringing some really big PSP games over as well? They'll be in weird, you know, farm them out to some fucking studio that needs that needs money, that needs money for their own projects to port these things. They'll be in weird dimensions and stuff and in weird resolutions. But I think it would be fun for them to my, my dream for PlayStation now is this really fun, really exciting realization of what we hope it would be, which is a, a way in totality to experience PlayStation as an ecosystem going back to the 90s. And the fact that PS4, for instance, can't even play PS1 classics, but Vita can is just it's just weird. They got to unify all of these things. And people might recall that years ago, Sony applied for a really interesting patent about applying trophies to PlayStation classics. And it would be cool if that was somehow applied to these games, because I think that would be an even more riveting situation. They've already done that with the PS2 re-releases, both from first and third party. So you have the Grand Theft Auto games with trophies, but you also have games from second party, like uh, like you said, War of the Monsters and others. Uh, but more imminently, like Rogue, well, that's really a first party game, but Rogue Legacy and uh, Dark Cloud and all of that that have trophies. So it would be, wouldn't it be fun to go back and play Siphon Filter or something with trophies? Or it would just give people an extra reason to get involved and yeah that's why i don't have playstation now is because first of all i have plenty of games to play as it is but there's just i don't feel like there's that much for me there yet right now because i want something that's like a that lets us realize our retro dreams on playstation and this isn't that yet but climbing in eight months from 1 million to 2.2 million subscribers is nothing to sneeze at and my my assumption is that this is going to be heavily pimped this summer with PlayStation 5 and it would be really cool for them to outright combine PlayStation Plus and the PS now but I don't know if they are going to do that I think they want to keep the brand separate but at least have some sort of functionality to keep them together I think would be cool at a discount so yeah we will see PlayStation now congratulations and I'm trying to pay attention to the audience that's saying we should talk more about PS now that one was for you number six Perhaps not surprisingly, Sony has revealed a special edition PS4 Pro bundle that will launch with and alongside The Last of Us Part 2 when the game comes out on June 19th. The console is is understated for a special edition. I'm sorry. It's black with an engraving of Ellie's arm tattoo on the side, and it also comes with a DualShock 4 controller as well as the physical version of the game itself. The controller also has Ellie's arm tattoo design on the right handle, though the controller is otherwise in the same finish as the console, the so-called steel black matte finish. The console with game and controller will cost $399 or your local equivalent. And for those who already own a PS4 Pro, the controller can be purchased separately for $64.99 or your local equivalent. I'll probably be picking one of those up. As a separate offering, Sony is also going to sell a limited edition gold wireless headset in the same black matte finish. The outside of the headset is adorned with The Last of Us Part 2's logo, while the inside has Ellie's arm tattoo. It'll cost $99.99 or your local equivalent. And finally, most strangely, Sony is going to sell an external two terabyte hard drive with manufacturer Seagate. This will likewise be adorned with the logo and tattoo art and will cost $89.99 or your local equivalent. If you're interested in purchasing PSVR, then you'll also be interested to know that Sony has predictably revealed an Iron Man VR PSVR bundle that will cost $349.99 or your local equivalent and include PSVR itself, a PlayStation camera, two PlayStation Move controllers, a physical copy of Iron Man VR, and a demo disc. It will be available as of July 3rd, Iron Man VR's strange release date. Did you see a picture of this console? I actually think it looks really cool. Yeah, I I like that it's subtle. It's not like garish and kind of, uh, you know, attention seeking. I like the matte. I I like matte finishes in general. Like, I I don't really like glossy, like, oh, here's a shiny fucking thing that's going to reflect everything back at you. You know, it's not my style. But it's a good looking machine. 
so this explains, Chris, both of these things. If you if you read between the lines, both the PSV Pro bundle with The Last of Us and the Iron Man PSVR bundle, this explains why the games were delayed. Uh, these were both necessary to be printed on disc in order to include with the special edition consoles right. and hardware. This is something I predicted, and it's not a huge prediction. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but I was saying that there needed to be more of a reason than just the game being printed on disc. There had to be more than that, and that was because they needed to manufacture the discs to get these consoles and pieces of hardware out. This will probably be, I don't want to speak with certitude, but it'll probably be your last chance to get a new PS4 Pro bundle. So if you've been waiting, I don't know if you even want to jump on this thing because PS5 is going to play these games. You're so close to that. If you have the money to do it, maybe you want to do that. But the um, the most compelling thing for me, actually, is the controller. And then the headset looks really cool as well. And I do need a new headset, so I might buy both of those. Yeah. And then the PSVR bundle is awesome because it comes with the camera, the PSVR unit, the camera and move controllers, which are unusually hard to find still. And obviously a copy of the game. So Iron Man VR, by the way, also has a demo. And you can go download that right now if you're interested in doing so. Calvin Kirstein wrote into us, or Steen said, Hi, Hey, Colin and Chris. When I was reading the PlayStation blog article about the new The Last of Us 2 PS4 Pro bundle, I noted, noticed that John Sweeney, the art director of Naughty Dog, spoke about fans having their own version of Ellie's fern tattoo. Firstly, how nerdy do you guys think this is? Secondly, do either of you have any tattoos of your own? Thanks and keep up the great work. Is it nerdy to get that tattoo? I, I think it's kind of a cool tattoo. I don't know that I'd want it, but I think it's a it's a really nice because it's, it's not clearly from a video game. So you can like go through a polite society with that. Yeah, no, exactly. It's not it's not it's not. Uh, I don't like tattoos that aren't subtle, like anything that's like if you get literally just the logo for Jack and Daxter tattooed on you, you know, like <laughs> like I don't know. That's like everybody's going to know what that is because it says it. And also, it's just kind of like, ah, uh, what is, what could this, it's, it's a little weird. It's a little weird to do stuff like that. But like, I don't sure. know, like a fern tattoo is pretty, it's pretty subtle. Like it's, it, I think it looks nice. It's, I think it's totally fine. I like it. And yeah. I, I think, is it nerdy? Yeah. I like nerdy tattoos though. I have nerdy tattoos. Chris, what are, you have tattoos. Uh, what, what are your tattoos? I only have one tattoo. It's, it's, it's like, uh, it's a, uh, it's on my right arm and it's a, a punk band kind of insignia that I really like. But it's just like oh, cool. it's also just like as a, as an image, it just looks really cool. I have uh, a few tattoos. People that have seen pictures of me know I have both my arms are tattooed. So I have uh, "We the People" from the Constitution on my right arm, and then I have the Benjamin Franklin "Join or Die" uh, snake from the French and Indian War on my left arm, and then I have Moriarty in huge letters tattooed on my back, yeah. which is a tattoo only an eighteen-year-old can get, and. <laughs> I actually don't mind the tattoo. I think it's fine, but I wish I had that real estate back. I think once tattoo removal becomes like better, it's already getting really good. But when it becomes easier and really works, I'm probably going to get it removed just so I can get something else back there. Yeah, I, def- I I wanted to get a sleeve, but uh, I don't think tattoo parlors are really in business right now. <laughs> no, I mean, that's that's definitely a group of people that are suffering economically yeah. right now, which is yeah. too bad. Yeah, I, there's a few more I want to get. I do want to I was thinking about getting like leg sleeves like for video game stuff like with Mega Man and Castlevania and stuff. But the the only two tattoos I really want to know I want to get is I want to get a Cobra logo from G.I. Joe and I want to get the Dr. Wiley logo tattooed on me as well <laughs> uh, from uh, Mega yeah. Man. But who knows? I haven't got I, the last time I got a tattoo. I was 21. I'm 35 now. So it's been a long time since I got any of my tattoos. 
Oh, man. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was in college. I got all my tattoos at a place called Chameleon, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right across from uh, the red line where Har- at the Harvard stop. If anyone wants to go check it out, yeah. they were really good. I think I got my tattoo around the same age. Yeah. It's uh, that was what I didn't think too carefully about anything. I actually really like my arm tattoo. So that worked out. But I'm like way too paranoid and like, oh, I don't know if I want that. Oh, I don't know. And then you got to find like the right person. And you're like, what if they fuck it up? And <laughs> yeah, as if like no one can give a good tattoo or something like that. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm too in my head at these at this juncture in my life, my middle age life. Number seven, Chinese mega tech company Tencent, which has ownership stakes in Western publishers ranging from Activision, Blizzard and Riot Games to Ubisoft and Epic, has continued its expansion, though it's doing so in the form of IP acquisition as opposed to studio acquisition. The corporation, the corporation has quietly purchased the rights to the System Shock franchise for an undisclosed sum as revealed by developer Otherside Entertainment, the team working on the beleaguered System Shock 3. Otherside's statement is brief. They noted that it's been, quote, challenging for us to carry the project on our own, end quote. And it's worth noting that Otherside has been having serious trouble getting the game finished, including experiencing reported layoffs that gutted the team mere months ago. Website Video Game Chronicle further notes that the URLs for both System Shock 3 and System Shock 4, the latter of which is not likely to even be in development, have been acquired by Tencent, signaling the move before it was even announced. System Shock 3 is the follow-up to 1999's System Shock 2, which itself is a sequel to 1994's original System Shock. 2007's Bioshock, widely considered one of the greatest games ever made, was a spiritual successor to the System Shock series and has seen three major releases in the last 13 years, Bioshock 2 and Bioshock Infinite. News of Tencent's acquisition of System Shock comes on the back of another interesting announcement, according to website Kotaku. Ken Imazumi, long known as Hideo Kojima's lieutenant on both the Metal Gear Solid series and Death Stranding, and who conspicuously left Kojima Productions earlier in the year, has joined the Chinese company as their gaming division's production director. So more Tencent nonsense. This company unsettles me, and uh, I do not like them getting involved. But if people go read the other side entertainment, really strange and brief statement, it's unclear to me if other side is still making the game or not. It, it doesn't seem because they say something like Tencent will be able to take this game to the next level or something. And I'm like, so you're are you making it or what is happening? I don't really know that it's not clear. I would assume that they are. But the, the verbiage leaves a lot to be desired. So, yeah, the lack of clarity it. is unsettling in and of itself. I would like to know the financial arrangement, how much that actually cost. And like System Shock, just a, you would think someone else would come in. See, it's not that other side owes anyone anything, but if I knew a Chinese, shady Chinese company like Tencent was sniffing around, I would go to other companies and ask them if they were interested before I sold. But maybe maybe they did. And maybe Tencent offered them the most amount of money. But you think someone like, don't you think like 2K or someone like Take Two would want System Shock? just to combine it with they own Bioshock. So just get involved and have the whole lineage of games together. You would think that they would want to pursue that, but yeah, but maybe they just kind of like see the numbers and they're like, ah, system shock isn't really huge or recognizable anymore. I mean, it's barely recognizable today. If if we're being honest, like I don't think anybody, I don't think your average person knows what system shock is. I, when I played Bioshock for the first time, I had no idea that it was a, a, like a continuance of anything. So um, and I was in the gaming industry, so it was a very PC centric thing. It's been 21 years since uh, System Shock 2. So you're probably right. There's probably not much value there, but hopefully System Shock 3 comes out and we enjoy it. I am looking forward to it. Number eight. Back in February, we discussed publisher Electronic Arts and developer Bioware's ambitious plan to rework its stalled 
underperforming and unpopular multiplayer shooter Anthem, which came out in February of 2019, a year before the essential reboot was revealed. The restructuring and reworking of the game is happening under under the moniker of Anthem Next. And in a blog post on BioWare's website, the studio director for a BioWare Austin, a BioWare's Austin, Texas arm went into a bit of detail in terms of what we can expect, especially when timing is concerned. Director Christian Daly notes that he and his small team of only 30 people is currently prototyping what they want to do and notes that, quote, this is going to be a longer process, end quote, before they have anything to reveal, nonetheless release. The rest of the post isn't exactly uplifting, though it is admittedly candid. Daly admits that he and his crew, quote, have had some tough challenges to tackle, end quote, and that he wants to be open and honest about both their work and about player expectations. He notes that it's, quote, not always pretty, end quote, to see how the sausage is made behind the scenes and requests continued constructive feedback on the game as is, as well as on its future iterations. He also notes that Bioware Austin is working on stuff not related to Anthem, which is interesting. BioWare was founded in Canada in 1995 and is primarily known for its RPGs, particularly the two, uh, the first two Baldur's Gate games, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, the Dragon Age series, and perhaps most notable of all, its Mass Effect trilogy. James Monzello wrote into us on Patreon, just like all of you can if you support us there. He says, hi, Colin and Chris. Anthem 2.0, supposedly a complete overhaul of the current Anthem that's supposed to go out as a patch at some point. Couple of questions on this. Why would they spend all of that money to try and revive a basically dead game? What's the cost they're not telling us? And isn't that going to just piss people off? It's in the incubation period, so it's probably not likely to hit before next gen does. So why not scrap it and just make a next gen sequel? Finally, is this just their secret way of trying to make a sequel without having to invest in a new campaign where they'll hit our wallets for the overhaul patch and brand new forms of micro-ish transactions to fuck with us? Uh, James, interesting questions here. Chris, what do you think about this whole anthem thing the post was i appreciate its candor but it made it seem a little more dire maybe than i thought it was going to be what's your take yeah the problem with the candor of it is it's like i i like that too i like it when a developer is just straight up i think id has been very very candid lately as like just an example like the way they handled a lot of the stuff with mick gordon and even recently with a a recent patch that went live for pc that they you know reasonably handled um, so there's ways to be candid with your audience and be open and transparent. And I think this is a fine way to do it, too. But the problem is, like, the candor in their tone kind of meshes too well with my candor about the game to the point where, like, even I have to assume that they know that it's a dumb idea to do this. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, how do you have this much self-awareness about, like, how this is going to be, like, a huge challenge to overcome and that like they know that things aren't really great like i know that too so what are you what are you doing like i like a good like redemption arc as much as anybody but like a game like this is specifically i don't know about i don't know what it is about anthem specifically that makes me feel like it's not worth it but it it i really feel strongly that there's not much that's special about anthem there's not much there to stoke the fires of and there's not like some hardcore community that's really keeping it afloat as far as i know like i i think i checked i checked recently the the player base for it and it's 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 just it's not there dude like i I don't know what's happening i don't know why the decision is being made to do this yeah to james's point because i agree with you in a sense that this space is too crowded for mediocre products mediocre products or even good products die because they just you have to be great you have to be special or unique in some way and that's just obvious. And it's 
it's not that Anthem's a single player game. You can play it by yourself. But when you need to attract other players to play it with you, then you need to compound that specialness because by attracting those people, you also have to attract them away from the time penalty that comes with playing games from PUBG or Fortnite or Apex Legends or whatever they might be playing or Borderlands 3 or what Destiny 2 Overwatch. If you have a genre that's established and it has a formula, like you have a looter shooter formula, you have a a game design philosophy that says we're going to place players in a world that they share together and that they grind for like better gear and better loot. In order to take people away from the things that they are already dedicated to, you have to be better, like demonstrably better, like to even to even pierce that shell. Because the fact is, a lot of these games are like second jobs to people. A lot of these games have people so deeply invested that the likelihood that anybody's just going to drop their game to come to yours is mm. is so unlikely, even if your game is great. Just from the sheer time investment and just the fact that their friends are playing the games that they're already playing. So when you have a game like Anthem that's not only not better, but... I think objectively just less interesting and and less content rich and and less well put together. Like I I don't I don't know, man. Like business wise, this is still one of the most baffling things I've ever seen. And I don't mean to be like super hard on the game or anything, but like I feel like you just got to read the writing on the wall sometimes, and you got to be like, okay, redemption arcs are cool. But there's something special about No Man's Sky. There was something cool about No Man's Sky that we hadn't seen before. Leaving planets' atmospheres and visiting different planets with the potential to do that with friends in like a relaxing kind of space sim. That's kind of interesting. It's not well executed on its first go around, but there's something interesting there that's worth fighting for. And I think even something like Siege, where there's like, hey, here's this competitive tactical first-person shooter that's really hardcore, that's really unforgiving, that's really like not really easily accessible. Didn't launch in the best state, but you know what? There's something here. I don't see what the something here is for Anthem. That's very well said. Very well said, indeed. Because you're right. You have to be unimpeachable when you release a game in this space. And the most recent game to pierce the veil is Warzone. And I think that that only happened. It's supposed to be really good. But the reason that happened is it's free and it's a Call of Duty game. And it can be brute force wedged into those spaces. Yeah, where there are already millions and millions of people that love that stuff. Anyway, I think this comes off as a little half hearted. The, the biggest surprise to me when Christian Daly wrote that there's only 30 of them working on it. I was like, this seems half assed. It's going to take way more than 30 people to fix this game. And it's a really small investment for electronic arts. This is obviously a fully owned studio. If you look at each person costing them one hundred thousand dollars a year on average in between their salaries and their bonuses and their perks like their health care and stuff. That's a $3 million a year investment. That's nothing. EA wipes its ass with $3 million. So it doesn't even really seem like it's something that they're really ambitiously chasing. And to James's question, you're not going to get a... So James is asking questions that I think can be obviously answered. They're not going to do a sequel because the original game no one cared about. So there's no reason to do a sequel. They need to revive this game. That would be like what Chris said with No Man's Sky, releasing No Man's Sky 2. It's like, well, you can't do that. You got to fix... If you want to make this a thing, you got to work on fixing it. I don't think that they're going to charge for the overhaul patch no. because that would be a disaster. What they want to do is get you in on a fixed game and charge you for DLC. That's what they want. So they're trying to get to that point. And I think they'd be allowed to do that. That's exactly what they did with No Man's Sky. So I think that 
it makes sense from a business perspective why you want to do this. You want to save Bioware's name, which has really been dragged through the muck, not only with Anthem, but obviously with uh, Mass Effect Andromeda. So you really need to save them, especially because Dragon Age is far away still. And you need to maybe fix this game because it might be an important pillar if they can fix it for this really valuable space that they obviously want to be in. But the interesting thing, Chris, is they're already in the space now. Apex Legends is in this space. So not only are they going to try to get this game going again, but now they're going to compete with another game that they already own. This is just like Battlefield 1 and Titanfall 2 when those games came out back to back. And I know that they're different. I know Anthem is not Apex Legends. They're different genres, but they really have the same player demands. And so I don't know. I, I don't think I, I like the I like a redemption arc, like you said, too. I like what Hello Games did with No Man's Sky. It was unexpected. They put their noses down. But the difference between what those two studios did is that Hello Games just fucked off. And did it in did it quietly and then delivered. And they had a, a group of people, by the way, that already liked the game, even in its old state, much more than Anthem ever controlled. But do you remember what the, the steam numbers were for this game? Oh, they were like super, super low. That's all I remember. It was like, uh, I can see if I could find it. Because I would, I mean, it would be surprising that anyone's playing it. There's why would you play this game at this point? Everyone's now in wait and see mode. And the more you talk about it, the more people are going to be in wait and see mode. So they're hurting the game as it, as they're trying to help it. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. But I think a lot of this surrounds Chris trying to save Bioware from not from closure or anything, but just their their reputation is not in good shape. Yeah. So and it, it doesn't deserve to be in good shape. Yeah. What does it say? So uh, I can't I think because Anthem is a Bioware game. I'm not sure if it's actually on Steam or not, but I did find this thing from uh, some website that says the game stands as one of the lowest rated Bioware games. In history, blah, blah, blah. It reportedly has twenty five hundred concurrent active players on Xbox One in North America. And that was uh, May 24th, 2019. That's a year ago. It's great. It's a year one, it's, ago, that yeah, was that was three months after the game came out. So the game probably has twenty five concurrent players on Xbox yeah, Live it's now. Not, it's not looking good, man. And I, I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's just baffling to me. It's interesting. It is interesting. All right, let's move on. Number nine, publisher Two K is getting into the officially licensed golf game business. A surprise move for a sport and league in the form of the PGA Tour that's been traditionally dominated by Two K's rival, Electronic Arts. 2K has revealed that PGA Tour 2K21 is coming to PlayStation 4 and elsewhere on August 21st and will have golfer Justin Thomas on its cover. The game is under development by external team HB Studios, Canadian developer that previously created a series of licensed games called the Golf Club that PGA Tour 2K21 is essentially morphing into. The last of three golf game uh, golf club games launched in 2019. The game will include 15 official courses, 12 golfers, golfers, I'm sorry, a full career mode and much more. EA Sports' original PGA Tour game called PGA Tour Golf came out in 1990. By 1998, starting with the 1999's Seasons game, the series was renamed Tiger Woods PGA Tour and was a mainstay in EA Sports' catalog for 15 years until EA launched a lone Rory McIlroy PGA Tour game in 2015. The series has since been dormant. I wanted to call this out, not that I'm, I'm, I'm not a golf fan. The, the golf games are really popular. The Tiger Woods games are huge. But uh, it was just interesting to see PGA Tour 2K21. I was like, what the hell happened here? And then I started reading a little bit about it and how the, the thing was bouncing around. Uh, the IP was bouncing around and the PGA Tour kind of license was bouncing around. So this is interesting. I would expect that HB Studios in Canada will be 2K's or Take-Two's next acquisition if this works out. 
Uh, so keep an eye on that since those guys are a golf studio, which is interesting. There's a, there's a need for every kind of studio. Yeah, indeed. Number 10, Minecraft, the best selling game of all time, has surpassed a massive new sales milestone. According to a blog post on Xbox's official website, Minecraft has sold a staggering 200 million copies since its launch in 2011. And perhaps even more staggering than that, a shocking 126 million people play Minecraft every month. Minecraft is the best-selling game ever by a substantial gap. Rockstar's Grand Theft Auto V at 130 million is the next closest game, followed by Wii Sports, which was bundled in with most Wii consoles and which has sold more than 80 million copies. News of Minecraft's insane success comes on the back of developer Mo Yang's rebranding into Mo Yang Studios, a minor change that nonetheless might represent grander future plans for what is easily Microsoft's most important first-party team. Such a change isn't the first time Mojang changed its name in its early days in Sweden. Mojang Studios was known as Mojang Specifications, but it is the first and only change since Microsoft acquired the team in 2014. Minecraft is available on virtually every imaginable platform, even as an Xbox first party game. It came to PS3 in 2013 and PS4 and Vita in 2014. Dungeon Crawler Minecraft Dungeons is set for imminent release on PS4. I uh, tweeted at Donald Trump yesterday inquiring if he was going to play Minecraft Dungeons with Don <laughs> Jr., uh, but he did not message me back. That's a shame. 200 million copies. 200 million copies. What a wise investment. Yeah. That, that, is that IP was. Yeah. For Staggering. Like that's that's a, that's such an insane amount of. That's just honestly like fearful. Like that's a fearfully like large amount of people playing. Especially even just like people man. concurrently playing is insane too. Yeah, 126 million a month, and there's a 70 million game gap between Minecraft and the next best-selling game. 70 million. Jesus so, Christ. And what's funny is that game being Red Theft Auto 5, they're both still selling, but they're probably still selling at an equal clip, so one will never catch the other. It's just incredible when you think about... Uh, well, l- let's, let's compare it to these next sales figures. We'll compare it to these, and you can see number 11... Some new sales figures have been released from a couple of Japanese publishers that may be of interest to PlayStation fans, according to website Gamatsu. For starters, publisher Bandai Namco has revealed that the From Software-developed Dark Souls series has surpassed 27 million units sold worldwide, with a full 10 million of those games coming in the form of Dark Souls 3, which came out back in 2016. Dark Souls itself began in 2011 following the release of the Sony-funded Demon Souls, which launched exclusively on PS3 in 2009, also developed by From Software, though Sony didn't see the success necessary to continue its collaboration with the developer until 2015's Bloodborne, which was a smash critical and commercial hit. Meanwhile, publisher Koei Tecmo has revealed that Neo 2, the follow-up to 2017's surprise hit Neo, which came out in mid-March, has now surpassed a far more modest 1 million units sold globally. Neo and its sequel were both developed by Koei Tecmo-owned Team Ninja, the studio most notably behind Ninja Gaiden. The original Neo sold 2.5 million copies in its first two years on the market. So just comparing those two yeah. <laughs> numbers, 1 million copies for Neo, that's a success for them, for Neo 2. 200 million copies for Jesus. Minecraft. And finally, Chris, number 12 is a wrap-up. It's a pretty lengthy one this week. Ooh. Website Kamatsu reports that already delayed JRPG Fairy Tale has been delayed again, this time from June to July 30th. That 2D side-scrolling roguelite Rising Hell is... Co- I'm sorry, yeah, Rising Hell is coming to PS4 this summer. That adventure game When the Past Was Around is coming to PS4 this summer. And that action RPG Zenjin is coming to PS4 later in 2020. Publisher Private Division has revealed that the eagerly anticipated sequel to 2011's Kerbal Space Program, the aptly named Kerbal Space Program 2, has been delayed into the fall of 2021 due to coronavirus, but is still on track to come to PS4. 
Japanese dev and publisher Arc System Works has revealed that its upcoming PS4 fighting game, Guilty Gear Strive, has also been delayed out of 2020, due to, also due to coronavirus, and will now launch in early 2021. Website Push Square reports that multiplayer game Flea Madness is coming to PlayStation 5 in 2021, and that Tennis World Tour is coming to PS4 in September. Developer Playful Studios has revealed that platformer New Super Lucky's Tale, which is already on Switch, is coming to PS4 at an undetermined point in the future. Publisher Bethesda has revealed a new 2020 roadmap for its beleaguered game Fallout 76, entering into a seasonal approach that promises a ton of new content. A lot of it's free. Website Kotaku reports that shooter Serious Sam 4, originally slated to come to PS4, will be delayed until 2021 at the earliest on the console, as it will be a timed PC and Stadia exclusive. IGN confirms that Gamescom's digital-only event, meant to replace its in-person event this August in Germany, will occur between August 27th and August 30th. HBO's streaming on demand service HBO Max, which will be out after just after this podcast goes live on Patreon, will launch on and be available from day one on PS4. The Embracer Group, which is a one time known as the infamous THQ Nordic, has revealed that it has an absurd 118 games in development, including 69 that have yet to be revealed. And finally, New Borderlands 3 DLC has been revealed called Bounty of Blood, A Fistful of Redemption, which launches on June 25th. And a smaller piece of content, Takedown at the Guardian Breach, which comes out. June 4th. So that is all of the news, Chris. Okay. Tradition dictates that we now read the games coming to PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, or no, not PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, PlayStation Vita, and PlayStation VR. We're getting ahead of ourselves with PS5. Yeah. Uh, Chris, you go first. Okay. A fold apart comes to PS4. In a world of folding paper, there are two sides to every story. After career choices force them to uh, force them along separate paths, a teacher and architect vow to make their long-distance relationship work at any cost. Experience both sides of their story as the couple navigates the complexities of miscommunication and the emotional ups and downs that separation brings. Ooh. Concept Destruction comes to PS4. Concept Destruction is all about driving miniature cars made of cardboard and crashing them into each other to earn points by destroying them. Pick from several different modes that suit your playstyle. Pick championship mode if you want to fight your way through mass production or choose survival mode to see how long you can survive a wave of deadly cardboard cars. All right. Dungeon of the Endless comes to PS4. Dungeon of the Endless is an is the award-winning roguelike dungeon defense game in which you and your team of heroes must protect the generator of your crashed ship while exploring an ever-expanding dungeon, all while facing waves of monsters and special events as you try to find your way out. Supposed to be a good game? Yeah. Fault Milestone 1 comes to PS4. Fault is a series of science fantasy cinematic novels using a unique 3D camera system for visually immersive reading experiences. Follow Selfine, the bubbly princess, and her sharp-witted guardian, Ratona. We read this last week, by the way. On their journey of a lifetime back to the homeland of Rugesenhide. Oh, yeah. I remember this one. This keeps happening because I guess games get delayed by a week. So there you go. Weird. Fluxteria comes to PS4. Welcome to Fluxteria, nonstop arcade space shooting action in full 3D. Four modes of play, story mode, survival mode, timed attack mode, and obstacle race mode. 14 different types of enemies, 20 different levels in beautifully stylized science fiction setting. (laughs) Crystal (laughs) Crystal clear shooting and blasting sound effects. Heart thumping music, period. That's it. That's it. All right. Fair enough. Golf with your friends comes to PS4. Why have friends if not to play golf with your friends? Nothing is out of bounds as you take on nine courses filled with fast paced, exciting, simultaneous mini golf for up to 12 players. This was uh, this is a fun game, actually. Yeah, uh, it looks cool, actually. Yeah, I believe that. I played it like, oh, my God, like four years ago. But uh, it's pretty good. 
Okay, what, what, what we got here? Gorn comes to PS4. Gorn is a ludicrously violent VR gladiator simulator. Okay, so I assume it also comes to PSVR. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, sorry yeah. about that. Nah, I mean, whatever. Savagely strike down an infinite supply of poorly animated opponents with all matter of weapons from swords, maces, and bows to nunchucks, throwing knives, massive two-handed warhammers, or even your blood-soaked bare hands. I actually, I've actually played this one, too. This is a, a lot of fun for a VR game, especially. It's just Right on. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you should go look up uh, gameplay of it if, you, uh, if you're unfamiliar with it because it's genuinely hysterical. Gunman Clive HD Collection comes to PS4. Jump and shoot your way across diverse and challenging levels and fight massive bosses. Gunman Clive is an old-school side-scrolling action platform game set in the Old West. Bring out your inner cowboy and get ready for some real gunslinger action. These are beloved games on the uh, 3DS and I think the Switch. Hmm. But as I said a week or two ago, the tr- there's no platinum trophy in this game. I just don't know what they're thinking with this shit. It, but I, I'll probably download it anyway. So. <laughs> uh, Man Eater comes to PS4. Experience the best Hall & Oates song. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Experience the ultimate power fantasy as the apex predator of the seas, a terrifying shark in all caps. Uh, Maneater is a single player open world action RPG. I'm not going to read that. Shark PG. <laughs> Where you are the shark. Devour nutrients to <laughs> devour nutrients to grow and evolve far beyond what nature intended. Become a massive shark, an apex predator of legends. To, to get revenge on the cruel fisherman that dismembered you. Eat, explore, evolve. Shark PG. Shark PG. Extermination Force comes to PS4. Battle against massive bosses. Jump and climb onto them to find their weak spots and blow them to kingdom come. In this action-packed platforming boss rush from the creator of the Gunman Clive series. Oh, interesting. So I guess that they're releasing their games all at once oh. here. Okay, cool. Monstrum comes to PS4. Set on a derelict cargo ship, you have to outsmart one of Monstrum's terrifying predators as you try to escape. With a procedurally generated environment and permadeath, it's up to you and your wits to stay alive or start over against another monster. Good luck. Start running. I've, I've actually played this one, too. Uh, wow, we read this one you. last week, but uh, this is not, yeah. not a bad one. You've been, re- you've been playing everything lately. Yeah, what the hell? All right. Saints Row the Third Remastered comes to PS4. Saints Row the Third Remastered gives you control of the Saints at the height of their power and you live the life to show for it. Fuck does that mean? This is your city. These are your rules. Remastered with enhanced graphics. Steelport, the original City of Sin, has never looked so good. Okay. Superhero X comes to PS4. Superhero X is the only 2.5D create-your-own-fighter game of its kind with a free-flow combat uh, combo system, a unique three-point evasive countering system, and the ability to mix and match fighting styles with power-ups to create your own original characters. Trailmakers comes to PS4. Build a car, a plane, a boat, or maybe a car plane boat. With Trailmakers initiative, uh, I'm sorry, Intuitive Builder, it is as easy as snapping together real building blocks. Take your machine on dangerous exploration missions, breakneck rally races, or go to the sandbox and build that hovercraft you have always dreamt about. The Wonderful 101 Remastered comes to PS4. A team of heroes from around the world must unite to protect the Earth from vicious alien invaders. This band of 100 Wonderful Ones works together using their fantastic abilities to create a variety of forms. Whether it be a giant fist or a sharp blade, they'll use their wits and power to overcome the enemy's pitfalls and perils. And that's the last one. Yeah, this game. That is the last one. So some interesting games here. I, I'm still annoyed that uh, Platinum kickstarted this game when they clearly had it done already. It was, it's like kind of defeats the purpose. So yeah, a few interesting ones here. Golf with your friends. Gorn, Gunman Clive, Monstrum, Saints Row, Wonderful 101. So 
some things for you to check out. Nothing crazy. Yeah. As we all lie in wait for The Last of Us Part 2. Chris, tradition now dictates that we end our show with six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience. We'll start with Salim Krichi, who says, Salam, CNC. How do you feel about representation of different cultures in video games? As a Moroccan of Middle Eastern descent, I'm always excited about games set in the region that tell stories with people from that region. I think the main issue is that with developers, uh, with mo- is that with most developers, I'm sorry, they're from the West or Japan, and so we get most games from that perspective. But when a game breaks away from that, I can't help but be more intrigued. A good example is Life is Strange 2, giving us a very real story of the Latino experience in America. Ashraf Ismail, the director of Black Flag, went on to make Origins, but it doesn't have to come from someone who is from that place, Ghost of Tsushima being that example. Do you think there are enough stories outside of the West and Japan, and how can we encourage more developers to jump into worlds they are unfamiliar with? Thank you and best wishes. Very, very nice question, Salim. Chris, how do you feel about the representation of kind of the uh, I want to say I don't mean this as an insult, but like more off the beaten path for us in the West, these more off the beaten path cultures and locales. That was actually one of the really attractive things to me about Dying Light was that it took place in what was ostensibly, I think, Turkey. And I didn't know of any game that really took place in that situation, especially of that triple A caliber. Yeah. So that was definitely one of the attractive things about it. And we have all these different Assassin's Creed games, obviously, that take place in all these different locales as well. Most notably, I guess, uh, like Greek and that's that's the West, but Greece and the Egyptian one and all that. So how do you feel about the representation of different cultures in video games? What is it that you want to see? Uh, I don't know if I have any experience that I'm dying to to see, but I, I do like it when a when a, like when something like Ghost of Tsushima exists, because it's something that we don't really see. I was actually thinking about Ghost of Tsushima a lot because Ghost of Tsushima looks like the Assassin's Creed Japan game that Ubisoft thought was too obvious to make <laughs> for all these years, even though it's like you'd, you'd think that the most obvious one would be the one that you you make first. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think generally speaking, I'm all about like that kind of like if, if you can give me a good game set in like a, a, a different place that I've never really thought about before. I think that's really cool. I I, I wonder how much is being held back and like how much like because we talked not too long ago about even subjects as far as like the Korean War and stuff like that aren't really touched on either for like a lot of you know geopolitical reasons and I wonder if there's genuinely just more interest in like hey Japan and West and that's it like I wonder if that's genuinely an economic reality or whether or not like games like Dying Light kind of prove that or, or Ghost of Tsushima even for example prove that like hey you know what these games can actually work and people are totally into them and life is Str- life is strange too i heard was actually way better than the first one so it'd be interesting i don't know with Celine, well Celine makes a good point here chris that we have ghost of tsushima being made by a, a team in washington state all about japan and no one's really giving them any pushback on this which i appreciate they also really had to come out early and make sure that that wasn't going to happen from a pr perspective so it was something that they were obviously worried about but I don't think you have to be from any of these areas to make these games, but I think that's oftentimes the games are probably heightened in nature when you are. So yeah. a good example is 4A Games and Metro. That's a really compelling game series. They're Ukrainian, so they're not quite Russian, but it's close enough that you feel like you're getting something a little bit more authentic out of them. And yeah. I really, really dug that a lot. But there are games that take place outside of the West. I mean, the Castlevania games largely yeah. take place in Eastern Europe and... The Far Cry games, with the exception of Far Cry 5, pretty much all take place in 
developing or third world countries or island nations and stuff like that. So they exist. And I, I do like that. It's is it important to me? I don't know if it's important to me. What's important to me is for people to tell the stories they want to tell and the environments they want to tell them. But right. I would love to see games in Israel or uh, North Africa or whatever the case might be, India, Bangladesh, whatever. I think it would be really neat to see that kind of stuff. It's just a matter of getting those things delivered. And you're right. It's probably there's probably some sort of fiscal uh, reality to that as well. So who knows? Thank you, Salim, for writing in. Manuel Nascimento wrote in and said, hey there, Crisis Colin and Core Chris, the new consoles SSDs and their new integration in the system are reported to enable faster loading times and new paradigms and how games are loaded and streamed as we play. However, Series X, PS5, and PC will all be different. So in a multi-platform game, how can it make use of innovations when one of those platforms could not be as fast as the other? Will console exclusives be the only ones to truly see the new paradigms in game loading and streaming while multi-platform games simply work like we have now, but faster in loading? This is a great question. That's why I included it, because I have no idea. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting question. I really don't know. I know that there are the Xbox Series X has an SSD, too, I think. Yeah. Right. But they're not but they're not playing up the speed like Sony is. So I don't know how they're going to work. I'm not technologically sophisticated in any way, so I can't tell you much about that. But this is the first what Manuel's question is the first time I ever really considered this outside of the normal shit. Like, oh, what are the what's the resolution and the frame rate going to be? But like the the way that they like we were talking about the controller thing with DualSense earlier about the raindrops and stuff. If Series X doesn't do that, like, how do they translate? How are you going to review these games? What game is going to be better? Are games going to be more expensive on one platform or the other? How do you think this is all going to work? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, it's it's a really interesting question because, like, this is... SSDs are far more integral to, like, the way that a game functions. Like, you could conceivably have a game that has no loading screens, like, if you're running it on an SSD. But how do you how do you do that with a console that maybe doesn't have that as a primary focus like surely you have to have loading screens of some kind if if the ssd doesn't work or even if you have a pc that doesn't work with ssds like how do you how do you get that multi-platform game working this is all like really high tier developer stuff that uh, i don't i feel like i would be talking out of my ass if i if i tried to explain it but i i would imagine that game developers have enough experience in this industry that if a game comes out on a PlayStation 5, it's probably going to run pretty damn close to how it's going to run on a Series X or a, or a high-end PC. I don't imagine that there would be some kind of crazy loss in quality that's too noticeable outside of like maybe like a Digital Foundry video that gets like really in the weeds with that stuff. And, uh, and I like that stuff a lot, like just watching like the tiny differences between machines. But... As far as like DualSense and like as far as that goes, it's like yeah, well, I, I if I'm if I'm being honest, I I think most multi platforms will probably not really delve into that stuff because they're probably going to focus on just getting the game playable on everything and anything extra for like one particular platform. It, it, it'd be like saying like oh you know Assassin's Creed Odyssey is going to have connect functionality. It's like will uh, will it though? You know, <laughs> just because the connect is there doesn't necessarily mean that developers are going to take special time and focus on one thing that's only available on one platform when what's really important is getting the game running uh, in the first place. And especially lately with like modern games, so many games being released broken and unfinished, it's clear that they need as much time as they can get. And they're probably not going to spend the extra time on these little features like, like haptic feedback on the controllers in any real meaningful way. I'm sure you'll see that a lot with first parties, obviously, but 
I have a feeling that a lot of these new features, like in previous generations, are going to be highlighted in the first wave of games and maybe the first wave of third party games, but will quickly kind of be thought of as kind of like an afterthought in the same way that the oh my god i'm getting a skype call you idiot (laughs) in the same way that uh you know the touchpad was kind of you know eh, axed pretty quick from functionality yeah it's it's a pretty compelling thing because it really started with ps4 and xbox one with the what is it x86 architecture or whatever and yeah the ease to bring these games across and how difficult it was between cell on ps3 and then xbox 360's architecture to port games and games came late and games ran usually a lot better on 360, etc. So this is just something else for them to consider. And I don't know what the effect will be because we what we've seen so far are a lot, we've seen multi-platform games, of course, but we've seen a lot of games that seem to be emphasizing one console or the other, like the Unreal Engine 5 showcase was all on PlayStation 5. And it stands to reason that Unreal Engine 5 is going to function better on PS5 because of some something than Xbox Series X. And that might be a reason why they showed it off like that. And we're seeing games that are coming to PS5 first or coming to Xbox Series X first. That might buy these developers time to rework their games in any way necessary in order to take advantage of what those consoles do best. But yeah, uh, we have to wait and see. We don't know. We don't know. It's a really compelling question, Manuel. Thank you so much for writing in. Alex Shute wrote in and said, hello, guys, the wonderful 101 Mafia, Tony Hawk and Destroy All Humans are just a few of the remastered or the remade games hitting current generation consoles this year. The well is obviously extremely deep for material when it comes to remakes and nostalgia uh, seems inevitably to be converted into sales. That being said, how do you feel about the idea that the seemingly endless reliance on rehashing existing material is stifling the creatives? Are we missing out on some truly incredible storytelling and innovation in gameplay as publishers tie up their creative talent, remaking a game from 15 years ago? I'm pumped for Tony Hawk, but given the option between that and a new IP, I would take the new IP every time. And then he says, much love from England X. Now, I don't know if the X is like a, a hug or a kiss or if the X is he's coming from a place in the future called England X. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It sounds like something from an anime. It does. Now, Alex, I, mean, I don't know how Chris feels about this, but I don't think the opportunity cost here is quite what you think it is. For the most part, these games are ported by either smaller teams, uh, ancillary teams within other teams, or there are ways to just get games on new platforms and test them out, or it's exported completely. I don't think it, I think, in other words, the publisher money and, and resources are definitely taken up, but I don't know that development resources are being taken up. Yeah, like Mafia is interesting because Hangar 13's logo is on that and they are making another Mafia game. Apparently, they might also be involved in the Bioshock game uh, in some way that I guess Cloud Chamber is also going to be working on. But I don't know that they're really being like tied up forever. I feel like these are ancillary things that actually develop them the necessary resources in terms of capital to make the new games. So I don't know if it's necessary to bring these out, but I think that it's a way for them to just feed the coffers while they make their new games. What do you think, Chris? I actually think kind of tapping the well of nostalgia and finding things to remake actually allows for the existence of more new IP. I I genuinely think, let's say, because a lot of people who make new IP are obviously inspired by things that came before it. Like, you can see a lot of DNA of older games in a lot of new IP, even something similar, even from, like, something that that recently came up. Prince of Persia, you know, was, like, a, a pretty reliable IP, and then it got kind of morphed into Assassin's Creed. Like, Assassin's Creed is a spiritual successor to Prince of Persia. They're not the same IP at all, 
but they share a lot of uh, similarity between them. And they're like, okay, well, maybe we can mold this into something that's new and interesting. And if you wanted to, say, make a skate game in 2020, well, skating isn't necessarily as popular as it was back when skate games were coming out. So you can use the sale or the, the, the numbers that you get out of a Tony Hawk remaster, which you can make for comparatively very, very cheap, and see, and you can gauge interest in how many people are actually interested in a new kind of skating experience. And that in turn could lead to like the publisher being like, okay, well, Tony Hawk did pretty well. Granted, that's a lot of nostalgia and a lot of, you know, brand loyalty to that old school IP. But maybe that also means that people would be interested in seeing a new proper Tony Hawk. Or maybe that would mean people are more interested in seeing a skate game in general. And then that lends them the capital to make that game a reality. So I, I think, yeah, you can get pretty in the weeds with just like relying on remaking the same stuff over and over again you'd be like okay well uh we don't have any new ideas so let's rehash this uh, this old id idea but i do think it lends to some level of creative license to make new things and it gives a lot of developers the opportunity to maybe take risks that without the existence of those remakes and remasters they might not necessarily have yeah very well said i think I agree with you completely. And as you have said in the past and, and just said, games like or earlier Spyro and Crash Bandicoot, those were both test balloons, obviously. And we're getting, I think, a new Crash game because of the success. Yeah. Activision would be actually insane not to make a new Crash game now. And I think they're going to find the same thing for Tony Hawk. And now that that's that relationship with Activision and Tony Hawk, the skater has been reignited. I think that we're going to see more. So I agree. The, the thing that uh, and, you know, this is to. Alex's point, I guess, is it does get gratuitous if remakes start happening more than once. Like there's a when Tony Hawk one and two are remade and re-released later this year, that's got to be the end of that. And they need to be made available on all future platforms in some way, which they should be so that we don't you know, we know that that's gone now. I I just don't want to see games remade over and over again. And that's when I will call out the gratuity of of this whole process. But in the meantime, when you have games like Mafia, that's a game from 2002 and it's been remade. It's not even like just a port and destroy all humans is an older game too, more than 10 years old. It's wonderful. One Oh one is a, is a port of a, of a game that was on Wii U. So it has no real place in, in the PlayStation ecosystem. So I think these games are not necessarily as gratuitous as we might find out. This stuff is in the future, but it it does seem in hindsight, Chris, how I, I just remember how quaint it was and how cool it was when games would get, Ported. Like I think about Super Mario All-Stars on SNES or when Sony really started releasing games like God of War Collection and the Sly Cooper Collection and all that kind of stuff. That was a different era. Then Ubisoft really got involved with doing some of that stuff with like Prince of Persia. And yeah. And before you knew it, like everyone was doing it because there's money to be made there. Mm-hmm. And and then you get remakes like the Shadow of the Colossus remake and all of that. But that's got to be the end. And uh, I'll be interested to see how that all develops. Thank you, uh, Alex, from England X. I hope everything's all right over there. <laughs> Michael wrote in and said, hello, Chris Lee Colin and Colin-esque Chris. A Sims-like game called Paralives is being crowdfunded, but not on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, but on Patreon. At the time of writing, they're receiving over $20,000 a month. To my knowledge, this is the first game I've seen using Patreon to crowdfund. What do you think of funding development of a game like this? And would you two as users of Patreon see, the be- see as benefits of using the platform over something like Kickstarter? Thanks, Boyo. So I actually just saw a video of this circulating yesterday Mm -hmm. or two days ago. 
I'm not into The Sims. I don't understand The Sims. I never understood The Sims. So this doesn't look very interesting to me. But I was reading the comments of the videos circulating around and people are fucking going crazy over this game. Have you have you seen it at all? Paralives? No, I'm looking it up. Or par Paralives? I think it's Paralives. It's got to be Paralives if it's a sim. <laughs> if it's a sims based game. But no, I've never heard of this. Yeah, so they are funding on Patreon. It looks fine if you're into that sort of game. I don't know what the advantage is. It's not the first game to be crowdfunded. There are a lot of actually adult games. What do you think the advantage of this is, Chris, to, to create a game like this over on Patreon over something like uh, Kickstarter? I, I do think the reputation of Patreon in general is just like a, a little bit better than Kickstarter because Kickstarter is kind of famous for scams, <laughs> uh, which is like a shame because I'm sure like the majority of Kickstarters probably aren't. But like that's some of the, the the most attention that I've ever seen drawn to Kickstarter is usually like either a it's stuff that's really cool or stuff that's really like just scammy and really absurd that it's even on the platform in the first place. But Patreon's a little bit more subdued. Patreon's a little bit more flexible and so it doesn't really draw that much negative attention or or really or positive attention really but because because of the reputation of that site i think it's i think it's totally reasonable to go to patreon over something like kickstarter which kind of lands people in hot water there are a lot of kickstarter games that i was looking forward to that i still like even like five six years ago that uh fuck even going on seven years ago that i i still have not seen so yeah that's the i think the major advantage probably you're right is that Patreon, what I was so attracted to with Patreon when I when I found it kind of funny back in the day, we were the first pay, successful Patreon really on the service. And it was attractive to me because I'm like, it keeps us honest. It, it keeps us honest every month. Like if people don't like the content, and that's the same here on Collins Last Stand's Patreon, which is mega successful thanks to you guys. And we appreciate that. But you keep us honest. If we're not delivering the content, if you don't like the content, if we just disappear with your money, whatever the case might be, then you can immediately hold us to account. As opposed to with Kickstarter, the money goes into the till all at once and then you have to wait and trust. And like Chris said, a lot of things just don't come out or need more money or they end up finding publishers, but more likely get canceled or forgotten about. And so I think Patreon is compelling for that reason. And I think it's compelling for a capital raising reason, too, probably for the developer, because they probably don't have any other games out in the wild. So they have no latent income coming in. Yeah. And so this is a way for them to like manage their studio, manage their workload, manage who they need and have money coming in and out that they don't have to necessarily stress about working out the books well into the future about how this game is going to be developed when game development is hard and things go pear-shaped really quickly. So I think that that's probably another reason why it's so good for them. And they could potentially make a mega successful studio where the game is out and they can constantly just support it for free in quotes using Patreon money. So I think it's really smart, but it's not the first game to do this on the platform. And in fact, what is that? Um, they don't do it on Patreon, but space game that like is always in development and has cost like $300 million, but like never has been released. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, what is what yeah. is the game? Do you remember the name of it? I don't remember the name, but I know I know what you're talking about. Like, I remember this vividly i hate when i can't remember the name of something what, what am i uh let's see here yeah i can't find i don't know i don't remember what it's called but it's some space game and it's and it, that is also still being crowdfunded in some way but it's not repetitive like patreon is so i think it's a good i like patreon a lot i know some people have problems with it but they've been good to me 
they've allowed me to live this awesome life and give me services and and tools that are great to use. And this could create a whole new avenue for people. Because, yeah, I've never I've never been in a Kickstarter at all, ever. I yeah. used to shit talk Kickstarter all the time just because I was um, disappointed in a lot of the stuff that was clearly not going to come out and, and didn't. So Denzel McFlurry. Do you think that's his real name? <laughs> I, I, I would imagine it is. Came out. Uh, uh, came out. He wrote us on Patreon and says, hey, CNC. This one might be more for Colin since he's a big trophy hunter, but do you remember any games that stick out for being particularly fun or tedious when going for platinum? I'm playing the remastered Uncharted trilogy, just completed Drake's Fortune, the first one. Thank you for clarifying that it was the first one. And it's real fun going through the game, uh, the story again on a harder difficulty to hunt down the trophies since they are connected to the in-game rewards, such as the fat Drake skin aptly called Donut Drake. Donut Drake was awesome. Love Donut Drake. They did end up removing him, I think, from the later games, though. So the Uncharted games, Denzel, are really great games for trophy hunting, especially on the PS4 collection that Bluepoint did, because I believe that those games, unlike the PS3 versions, allow you to go to crushing difficulty immediately so you don't have to play the games twice, I recall. Because I platinumed all three on PS3, and then I platinumed the first two on PS4, and I don't think I played them twice through. Yeah. I don't think that that actually happened. The game that I love the most that I think has the coolest trophy list is Bioshock. But the thing that bothers me about trophies, not so much now, but certainly back in the day, and we've talked about this in the past, are, are just multiplayer trophies. And someone else actually wrote in. I didn't use their question, but someone wrote in and said, um, shouldn't developers and publishers be doing something about these multiplayer trophies and achievements that you just can't get anymore because uh, the the situation has changed. The servers are down like games like White Knight Chronicles, for instance, like you can't get the platinum in that game anymore because you can't play it online on PS3. So that's kind of what frustrates me. But we've talked about, Chris, as you might recall, that some studios have been going in and changing the trophies in their games. I think this might have even happened for Rainbow Six Siege and other some other uh, multiplayer centric games, which I the division, right? I think it was one of them. I think that might have been one of them, too, where if you earn the trophy the old way, then it will pop up as if you because it just takes the same place in the roster. It looks like you've gotten it, even though you and you did get it, even though you didn't do what was necessary to get that trophy. So that's one of the things that I like. That's kind. Of, it, it requires to recertify the game, and it's probably annoying and expensive. But it's one of those cool things that keeps things fresh for people and should ameliorate those problems because those are the problem. The trophies Denzel that I find most tedious are where I look at the list and is even with Doom Eternal recently. I'm like, come on, I don't want to go online. Yeah, I just I just feel like you gotta separate these things and the studios that. Uncharted, ironically, are the games that did it right, where it was just like, just play online once. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, like, yeah. All right. I can do that. But like getting 100 kills or winning on every map and all that, like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. Yeah, it, it's especially irritating when when a game just has so little multiplayer focus and when so many of those can uh, can just be timed out. Like a lot. There are a lot of like games that I used to play that would like heavily focus on multiplayer and had a lot of multiplayer achievements like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, like the original Call of Duty 4. I was fine with that because uh, like those achievements weren't necessarily really hard to get. They just if you played consistently for like even just like a, a month, like you'd, you'd get a lot of those things. But then a lot of the things that I hated specifically were, oh, hey, you know, um, get uh, what is it? Win a match on these DLC maps. You know, like, hey, here's a map pack that not everybody has and the player pool is already really low for it because it's a it's a map pack that people have to pay for. And why would they do that when the base game is already so good? So uh, find a match on these maps that have a limited player pool and do this insane thing. And it's like, what? 
Like, nobody's playing these maps anymore. Like, they don't even come up in matchmaking, like, at all, because nobody has them. And then you're just, and then you're just stuck. Whenever there's achievements tied to content that is, oh, like, separate from the base game, even though they're part of the same trophy, uh, same trophy list, that's frustrating. Like, that is really, really irritating. Yeah, they've done a really nice job in the last few years on PlayStation to at least separate those out so that yeah. they don't count towards the platinum, but they do count towards the percentage. So if you're really OCD about that shit, like, you can get a... I think Assassin's Creed is even like this now, the uh, Odyssey one, and and obviously a lot of these different shooters where you can have the Platinum Trophy with like 40% of the trophies. And that just annoys the shit out of me, where it's like, what the fuck? But people might recall, if you've been trophy hunting for a long time, that the Platinum Trophy used to count towards the percentage. So you would get to like 80%, and then it would just jump to 100% because you got the Platinum Trophy. So they fixed that. So things flex over time. They have bigger problems to to fry with these uh the, the way the trophies are now just in terms of these cheap platinums and um they bother me but i, don't, I guess it doesn't really bother that many other people yeah. finally chris finally harry pickin harry pickin <laughs> uh, that's why I, how i want to say his name he says, Dear mr moriarty harry harry i wonder if he's british probably offending him it says dear mr moriarty and mr maldonado does historical accuracy matter in video games after watching the recent Assassin's Creed trailer and having a degree in history from a good UK university. There he is. He is British. I knew it. I was slightly concerned at both the whitewashing of Viking crimes and the demonization of Alfred the Great, often considered the greatest Anglo-Saxon king. The producers of popular media often underestimate how much their interpretation of events becomes hard historical fact in the popular consciousness. I would love to hear both of your thoughts on this matter. Thank you, Harry. I have a degree in history, too, so I can sympathize with you here. So I was seeing some conversation about Assassin's Creed Valhalla specifically because the Vikings were fucking crazy and it doesn't really come off like that. Now, if you read about the Vikings more deeply, it can be the Vikings raid generational raids and all these kinds of things can be blamed on the incursion of their own lands from Francia and other kingdoms that existed at that time. So I understand that. And and Rus. Kievan Rus and all that. So I do understand that, but I don't know, and Chris might disagree, I don't know that history really matters in terms of accuracy in these games unless you're trying to position yourself accurately. So Ghost of Tsushima is a really good example where it takes place during the Mongol invasions in the 13th century, but it's not historically accurate. They're saying it's not historically accurate. Even the armor he's wearing is not remotely accurate to the time. I think it's from like the 17th or 18th century. And so I think if you just position yourself in such a way where people aren't getting the wrong idea, that's one thing. But I do know that there's a vertical on PC, especially with different strategy games and the like, where historical accuracy is everything. And even when you play games like Civilization VI, which I love, those games are pretty cool because there is some sort of history to be learned there. It obviously smashes history together in weird ways, uh, ways that aren't real and don't make sense. But there's a lot of this accuracy there, too, in terms of your military units, in terms of like the talents of your kingdom and what you might be predisposed to war or science or culture or whatever the case might be. And there is all there are all these strategy games on PC, like where you play as like a panzer division or play as like, you know, Sherman tanks and you're rolling over Europe and you're having these really accurate war games and all that kind of stuff. And so I think there's a place for all of it. So I don't know that it's important because I think you can have everything. Yeah. Uh, what do you say, Chris? No, I, I, I would agree. I think it's contextually important in the sense that, like, if you're making a game that prides itself on historical accuracy, well, then you should probably focus on historical accuracy or else people are going to come at you and, like, make fun of you when you're not historically accurate. But I don't think really Assassin's Creed is going for that. And I also don't think it really matters 
as far as like, oh, well, people are getting some idea of history and it's being molded by fiction. It's like, yeah, but we also have the wealth and the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips at any given moment. And if you're going to be like, well, I believe this thing about this group of people because I played a video game, like it's kind of inherently like you, you, you almost can't be helped anyway. <laughs> like is, is the way yeah, that I kind true. of put it. It's like, I, I don't know how you could really sit yourself in an argument and really think about how you came to that conclusion and be like, Oh, that's really, that's a valid point, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think it's really that important. I think it's totally fine to mess with history and sort of have different perspectives come in and just sort of mess with it a little bit. I think that's some of some of my favorite shit in the world is is just stuff that is just historically completely just wrong. Like one of my favorite movies in Glorious Bastards is is just a complete rewriting of complete rewriting of history and it's it's so good because it's because it's different and it's because it's fiction and because it's entertaining and because it's cool to see like this different take on something that may or may not have actually happened. Yeah, it's, I think also I think Harry might be ignoring Chris that when you play with history like Assassin's Creed does and other games do that, it might turn you on to, like you said, looking at things and researching things, not only for context, but just generally. Maybe you're not familiar at all with Alfred the Great or what the Vikings and the Danes did and, and these these generational wars that they were fighting. And so you go look it up and then you learn the real story or not, but it might just scratch that that itch that you might not have even known you had. Yeah. I know that Assassin's Creed three, cause I'm an, I got an American history degree and I'm, uh, I, I really specialize in the American revolution. Assassin's Creed three was so attractive to me because that's where it took place. But I also know because people know that I like that stuff that they would tell me like, this is what opened my eyes to this whole vertical of history. And so I think that there's a little bit of power, even in the ina- inaccurate stuff to uh, make history more palatable to people and more accessible. And then yeah, it's too bad that they demonize Alfred the Great and it's too bad that they whitewash what the Vikings and the Danes did. But that's just one perspective. And as I've, I've been saying over the last few weeks with this game since Valhalla was announced, Vikings, the show and the show, The Last Kingdom, both also kind of glamorize the Vikings. So this is not a yeah. unique thing. to but this we, game. Well, we also glamorize ninjas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> Who are like literally just serial killers like just straight up just uh psychopaths and they're like also like hey you know what you you remember that ancient you remember that ancient psycho that class of ancient psychopath murderer thieves from japan from a long time ago they're really cool and we're gonna turn them we're gonna turn them into turtles (laughs) and we're gonna make them eat pizza in new york city because why not it's just like i don't know man fiction is fun it's all about uh, it honestly is. when you really look at fiction it, it really is about taking like heinous shit and, and making it palatable yeah amen i love it but i do like harry's uh inquiry we appreciate you writing it in that's all we have though chris for this episode of sacred symbols of playstation podcast next week's episode is episode 100 so submit those questions comments concerns thoughts and ideas on patreon since we will go for 100 minutes at the end of the show answering your questions comments concerns thoughts and ideas i think that'll be a fun way to celebrate while not interrupting the news yeah that people come to expect us to talk about and analyze thank you so much for supporting us on patreon we appreciate that you can get early ad free access to the show sacred symbols plus etc by doing so and we really appreciate it we could use all the help we can get there if you listen on free feeds we appreciate you too. uh support our sponsors leave us nice reviews on itunes and do all of the other things that one might do if they like a podcast chris 
I wish you well. I'll see you next time. Talk to you next time for more sacred symbols. Sure thing, man. And uh, I appreciate everyone out there as well. Thank you for your love and kindness. Enjoy yourselves. Talk soon. Goodbye. Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Richmond, Virginia and Burbank, California, USA. This show is conceived by, is written by, and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Chris Raygun. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Chris is on Twitter at Chris R. Gunn and on Instagram at Chris underscore Ray underscore Gunn. Sacred Symbols is edited by Dustin Furman. To message the show online, please use Patreon's DM service. As you know, all of Colin's Last Stand shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. A.G. Rowe, Adam Nix, Ahmad Tamar, Alex Cabrera, Alex Gates, Alan Tremblay, an unofficial controller podcast, Andrew Parker, Anton Kay, Antti Kinnanen, Avery Lewandowski, Azan, Barrett Boswell, Bo Clant, Ben, Betty Ann Moriarty, Bjorn Campbell, Blake Israel, Bloody Fang, Boots, Brad Cooley, Brian Chan, Casual Misfits Gaming, Chad Lewis, Chris Bustin, Chris Galvin, Chris Moore, Cody Bradbury, Colin Davenport, Colin Love, Connor Gashian, Corey Wyatt, Damon Weathers, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Margaka, Darren Gardner, Daryl E. Naiman, David Chestnut, David John Finnegan Wright, Don Lee, Donnie Nolan, Dylan Burns, Enrique Perez, Eric Finkenbeiner, Eric Harden, Galgia, Gamer Filmaholic, George Anthony Nunez, Gerald Pennington, Gio Corsi, Greg Julifs, Gregory Slovinsky, Homeworld Hub, Hugo's Desk, Infinite, Isaac Wassman, Jason Pettit, Jackson Lastiqua, Jay Getter, Jeff Pollard, Jeremy Key, Jeremy Shook, Jerome Ferreira, Jesse Owen, Joe McPartland, Joe Finelli, John, John Schultz, John Cordero, Jonathan Reich, Jonathan H., Jorge Palomino, Josh Bushing, Josh Gravelick, Josh Yeager, Josh M., Josh McKinney, Joshua Smallwood, Justin Wagman, Carl Tolman, Keith A. Lewis, Kevin Komaki, Kevin R. Lord, Knight Draft, Kyle Hagel, Lawrence F. Prokop, Lennon Brixie, Lewin Ray Loper, Mad Mock Media, Miranda Grubba, Mark Boggio, Marius Garson Peterson, Martin Beck, Mason Kodalak, Matt Martin, Matthew Perdue, McDog18, Megadet, Michael Gates, Michael Vecchio, Miguel A. Brewer, Mike Wayant, Morgan Ashley, Mubarak, Nathan R., Of Fortuna, Organic Produce, Patrick Harper, Patrick Kelly, Patrick Leslie, Paul Joyce, Peter Reynolds, Petro Rose, Phil Crone, Raul Melendez, Ray Lasia, Richard Heber III, Richter86, Robbie Hensley, Rodney Coleman, Ross Maranka, Ryan Murdoch, Ryan R. Kittredge, Ryan Reeves, Ryan T. Mandel, Saul Balcazar, Scott Lovelace, Sean Chandler, Sean Mason, Shane Rayum, Simon Conception Jr., SLD FMA, Spencer Brand, Stephen Nieder, Taylor Barkley, TB Lightning, Throw7, Toby Schutman, Todd Paxton, Tony Zuniga, Toothless Gibbon, Travis Plymel, Tyler Bello, Tyler Harris, Vexius, William O'Carroll, and Zach Parsley. Hello? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 